Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock-flavoured and genre-fiction-focused podcast. Loz is back in Derry and Tom's to pick up part two of Fortress of the Pearl, and as always, we're accompanied on our journey by a dreamy slate of beers. Well, a dream to some. A nightmare to others! <clears throat> we do bang on a bit, so I'll keep this intro short, but... The day I put all of our audio files into my editing suite, a package arrived on my doorstep that is just the first little piece of synchronicity around this episode. It was all the way from Greece. A cassette of Fortress of the Pearl by the black metal dungeon synth artist known as Fortress of the Pearl. It's a little bit of magic, and we'll play the show out with a title track, so stick around until the end. Also, the day before this drops... The Appendix N Book Club released their 133rd episode with a guest on their couch. Me. It was a delight, and Jeff and Hoy were just as warm and erudite in person as they are on their show. We talked about Paul Anderson's Operation Chaos, so tune in and find them on all good podcatchers, and, in particular, find the episode where they talked to Mike himself. Whilst we were chatting, they said that Mike disproved the old adage, never meet your heroes, because he was brilliant to talk to. Now I can add to that, that meeting a pair of podcasting heroes was similarly brilliant. That's enough smoke blowing for now, though. I'll just say that I'd like to think I'm their first guest in 133 shows to somehow mention Freddy Stars Hitler. Make of that what you will. Otherwise, pull up your dream couch, hook arms with us, forgive us for being slow on the uptake, as we take a journey into the dreams of a holy child in The Fortress of the Pearl, Part 2. We're back in Derry and Tom's, and amazingly, Laws is back in Derry and Tom's. A whole, I don't know, let me count on my fingers. June, July, August, September, October, November, December, January. Uh, no, that's wrong. Is it nine? Can it be nine months from May? He did all that with one hand as well, which is quite astonishing. Yeah, that's probably why I got it really badly <laughs> wrong. Um, maybe it's seven or eight months. I don't know, but it's a while anyway. We've had a couple yeah. of false starts. I think the last of which was you came over and neither of us had done our homework, so we just got drunk and recorded Patron Extra, which was beer matching to Eternal Champion characters. Which was that pretty... is, That's tenuous at best. It's tenuous it? at best, but you know what? It's We, we are the patrons' high-quality content. <laughs> and sadly, we couldn't provide any. <laughs> so that was the second best. Although, thinking about that, that seems a lot longer ago. Maybe that was the first abortive attempt to do part yeah. one of the Fortress of the Pearl. And that's a, a no kind of... It's nothing to do with the quality of the book. Let's judge that yeah. as we go. Eh? We just need to outline some rules. But first of all, Happy New Year. This is the first actual... Well, it's not the first released podcast of the year. It's the first recorded podcast of 2023. What have you been reading? Not a lot, to no. be honest. I've been attempting, as I said before, trying to read the Cormac McCarthy book, mm. but my eyesight has failed me miserably. Uh. So I've moved swiftly onto audiobook. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been listening to the Elric audiobook, mm-hmm. uh, weirdly some Miss Marple short stories, mm. and uh, what else have I been listening to? And I finished the last Bond book as well, uh. which was by somebody or Some other. guy. Some guy or other, yeah. that was all right. Yeah. I've been a bit random, so I've been listening to some of the Poirot short stories as well. Because mm. basically when I'm reading at the moment is when I'm in bed, mm. And generally read one page and then pass out, mm. or 
put my audio book on and listen to one chapter and pass out. And yeah. then it takes me about 10 years to go through any of it. Yeah, it would be really nice to just have the time to read rather than trying to fit it in in between other scraps of life. No, I tell a lie, actually. Uh, the last two books that I've finished, I read uh, Bullet Train, mm. which was Ace, and the, seen the film after it, mm. which is all right, mm. not so much. And then I read the prequel to Bullet Train called Three Assassins, which is really good as well. Oh. So the, both of those are really, really cool. All right. And Page Turners, I read, read both of them on holiday, and it was one of those things where you just... That's the only time I've had time to read, really. Mm. Sat looking at the sea, reading mm. a book is ace. Mm. Yeah, we've got a holiday coming up in a few weeks, which we're hoping to spend by the sea somewhere. So I'm very much looking forward to reading something. But you said you've been listening to an Elric audio book. Is that Citadel of Forgotten Myths? Yeah, I've got both. Well, basically, I've got all of the Elric ones uh, start to finish mm-hmm. on audio, and I've listened to Fortress of the Pearl mm. just in case I was being lazy and didn't read it, but mm. I've read it. Mm. Uh, but yes, I've also started the Citadel of Forgotten Myths. Mm. Is that the audio book where Moonglum is from Yorkshire? Yeah, so basically what one of the main problems I've had with a lot of the Elric audio books is the regional accents mm. for various people. So Una is uh, Irish, mm. which you can kind of understand a bit. Mm. Moonglum being from Yorkshire, mm. that is a bit more problematic, I mm. think. Well, considering we do all of our readings... In Yorkshire, yeah, uh, I think the, I really shouldn't have a problem with that, but I don't know. Instinctively, I do. It's Some a, drunk pissheads crapping on on a podcast in Yorkshire accents is one thing. Yeah, when you're paying marginally good money for it, mm. but it's, it's that thing of like, hey, up, Elric. Uh, yeah, it just takes me out of it a bit. Yeah, the the Elric voice is kind of almost non. It's it's nothing. It's mm. just a. You know, neutral. Yeah, neutral voice, which is all right. But as soon as the accents come in, you're a bit like, mm. Mm. Right. well, if we do any readings on this episode, we'll have to see how we go. Maybe I'll do Una as Bernard Manning to try and yeah, balance yeah, it a little could, bit. It could work. We'll see. We'll see. So before we crack on, we need to talk about our beer rules. Mm. And I thought because there's five chapters, then we can fit in definitely at least five beers. As we go along. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a slate. Now, what I've done is I did originally have a slate of eight for our wandering beer table, the return, the triumphant return of the (laughs) wandering beer table. Although we probably shouldn't be using D&D trucks in the podcast anymore. We'll probably own money, won't we? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So I tell you what, let's just test it, shall we? See if they come kicking our door down. By the way, this podcast doesn't use the OGL because we don't really know what it means. No, I have no idea. No. So we'll go along the line. At number one, we have Hallo Ikbin Raspberry Berliner. A gentle 3.7%. Yeah, Let's kick us off. That's fine, it? isn't it? What do we have at number two, Loz? Yeah, we have the one I'm massively looking forward to, the Turkish Baklava Pale. Mm. Uh, clocking in. That's 5.5, I think. Yeah, it is 5.5. Yeah. Mm. So Next in line, we have one of Vocation's special editions, this is ripping off the Maltesers label. Naughty and nice malted honeycomb chocolate stout at 6%. Which might be quite nice. Mm. Next up, again, I think this one's for you, Loz. Absolutely tragic, this one. It, yeah. I'm sure it's the Northern Monk one again. It's the Turkish Delight Sour, the drink nobody has ever asked for. No. Ever. And yeah. that's 6.2, I believe. Yeah. Chaos champions all over demand that we roll four. Yeah, so, so that's a 
that's going to be the uh, the challenge, I think. Uh, no, well, you say that, <laughs> but hang on. Another vocation special edition, naughty and nice, whipped nugget chocolate stout at seven percent. This one, the label, ripping off the Milky Way logo. Oh, it's definitely not the Milky Way, is it? Mm. Yes. And at number six, we have the uh, vocation naughty and nice. Caramel cookie chocolate stout. That's the Snickers ripoff. Uh, Twix. Twix. Sorry. Twix. And that is a cozy eight. Eight percent. A mere eight percent. Mere eight yeah. percent. And of course, the, the Snickers is next. Yeah. And this is the vocation special edition roasted peanut caramel chocolate imperial stout at nine percent. Imper- <laughs> so does it have to be over a certain strength before it's legally allowed to be called imperial? I don't know, or is it the type of hops or something? I have no idea. I think think Imperial just usually indicates wanker beer, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, is that... We are big enough wankers to drink... And when they say Imperial, you know, which empire are we talking about? Yeah, good point. And finally, on the list... The uh, Pièce de Résistance, Mm. Vocation Special Edition once more, the naughty and nice coconut milk chocolate Imperial Stout, definitely not a bounty. No. Uh, a mere ten percent. Yeah, yeah. Which you know, it's goes with many a dessert. I would warrant. Yeah, and just not in my house. Probably comes out tasting yeah. exactly the same as it goes in. Yeah, but I think what we should probably do because we need to actually get through this is we'll separate off the nine and ten percenters. Yeah, and we'll yeah. we'll roll a d six on the first six on the slate, and that will be our slate for chapters one to five, and then. Later on, once we've finished recording, after we've had something to eat, we may well come back and drink the last three just for shits and giggles. Yeah. I and, mean, it's your house. So, yeah. You know, you're the one who'll be cleaning it sick, yeah. to be honest. So, okay. Well, yeah. well, you know, Phil could probably <laughs> Phil help. <will. laughs> okay. You can roll the dice, sir. Excellent. Right. High hopes on this one. Four. It's four. Snake eyes. Lords of Chaos oh, Rule. Mate. It is. The Turkish Delight Sour. There we go. And we've got one each. And we've got one each. Oh, we're not sharing it. No, we're not sharing it. We're going for it. That is tragic. And Because I've got to get these out of my fucking kitchen somehow. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. We've Uh, already warmed up with a McEwan's (laughs) Export. We have. We went old school. (laughs) And a Loch Lomond Black IPS. Which was very nice. Which was very nice. Not bad for £1.40 or something from... uh, from Lidl. From all other supermarkets are available. Yeah. But now we're going to find out oh, if £4.50 for a can of beer actually results in yeah. value for money. The, th- the thing for me about Turkish Delight and Sours, yeah. so I hate Turkish Delight yeah. and Sours. Uh, so I'm looking forward to this one. Whereas I like Turkish Delight and I like Sours. Do you like your Turkish Delight, the old school Turkish Delight? You know, your Cadbury's. Or I like talking all proper, Turkish well, Delight. The I, gamut of I, Turkish I like Delight. it all. I like the stuff made with beetroot. I like the stuff with... Beetroot? Uh, oh, yeah, beetroot sugar. Turkish Delight. Beetroot sugar? Beetroot sugar Turkish Delight is a thing. Is it? Covered in rose, dried rose petals. Oh, is it though? Oh, is yeah. it really? It really is. <laughs> um, I like the stuff with pistachios in... It always uh, looks amazing. Yeah. So when you when you go past a stall of it, it's like, oh, I bet that's ace. Yeah. And then you're just eating perfume. Mm. Crap perfume. Let's anyway. go. Let's Cheers. do it. Cheers. Well, how peculiar. It's not hideous, is it? No, it's all right, though. I like that. In fact, I can see us drinking that really quickly, so we'd better start talking about Mocock, aren't we? Are we going to drink it that quickly? It's very optimistic. Uh, I don't know. I can see that going down quite nicely. Yeah, so it's been a, it's been a while since we... Uh, 
ploughed through book one. Yeah, we need to recap that, really, we, don't I we? I mean, we left uh, Alnet Kreb, mm. didn't we, in, in, in a not a good place. No, we need being, to mourn Alnet Kreb. Being dead. Yeah. I, I reckon I was thinking about this earlier. Is he the worst Companions Champions ever? Uh, well... We, we can pause that, because later on yeah. there is a, a strong challenger. Yeah, there is. Know. Yeah. I'm trying to think of somebody worse. I liked Alnet Kreb, and I liked the cut of his jib, and I was quite disappointed when he went out so badly. That's what I meant. I meant not yeah. necessarily his personality, more of his, his character arc of, all yeah. right, Elric, brilliant. There is a lot of that in oh, book two, dead. Though, yeah, there a lot is. of that in part two. A lot of people introduced who you think, oh, yeah, this seems yeah. quite, oh, oh, he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was, a, it was almost a bit like, yeah, it, when when it was written, was he just like, oh, yeah, it was, it was yeah. got a bit distracted, yeah. writing something else, maybe mm. a pie-up book or something, yeah. and then went back and, oh, shit. Well, I've got thoughts on how this book might have originated, but I'll leave it for the time being. Right. Yeah. So to recap, part one, Elric is lost in the desert. He is. He's near Quadrasart. Quadrasart. Uh, a young lad called Anai picks him up and thinks, oi, oi. This guy's got some interesting-looking gear. Maybe I can flog it. To cut a long story short, Elric is... He's in a bad way, isn't he? He's really? in a bad way, and Lord Go, yeah, who was a bit of a prick, Yeah, who's got fat fingers. There's a brilliant description of him later on, which we should, uh, we should go to. Mm. He's got fat fingers. We don't like him. I don't think fat fingers is necessarily an indicator of I, poor character. I don't think that's the worst trait, is it? Really? No. That there are there are other things. It's probably quite bad on the old telephones. You yeah, know, the really old school ones. Yeah, yeah. They just won't be able to do it. Really. I expect so. Yeah. And to be honest, modern telephones, I think you'd be in three or four keys at once. Yeah, exactly. But he ends up enlisting Elric to undertake a task, but actually kind of backs Elric into a corner by giving him something to deal with Elric's weakness. An elixir. Because Elric has run out of his life-sustaining herbs. Mm. So Lord Go gives him his elixir, which is super, super addictive. So basically, Elric is now on Quasashat smack. Yeah. I mean, the other side of it, he, he, you know, to be fair to Elric, because it's nice Elric, I think. Mm. We'll come to that later as well. I think he could have just killed everybody and he was Stormbringer. He, he decided not to, didn't he? He made that decision of like, no, I'm just going to die here in, in, a, in a ditch. Well, we've still got... Because this is the second chronologically, Elric is still idealistic Elric, isn't yeah, he? Yeah. Who doesn't want to murder the world. He wants to be out there on his gap year, having yeah. experiences and finding out how the rest of the young kingdoms live. Yeah, change, so, change the world, doesn't yeah. he? He wants the empire to be one of good. Yeah, fair play. So he sets off and he keeps getting accosted by sorcerer adventurers of yeah. different elements of this Quasachat council who are all a bit fucking stupid, to be honest. But was it the six it, and one? I can't, yeah, yeah, it was kind of entertaining. He kept on getting accosted by these blokes in different coloured costumes, butchering with, with most of them. tattooed eyes. Tattooed eyes, yeah. yeah. But he, he, he carries on and then he's... What's, what's the quest? The quest is to get to the bronze tent because a girl is unconscious... And Lord Go wants him to find the, south, the Fortress of the Pearl, and his avenue to get to the Fortress of the Pearl is via, it, hair, is yeah. via hair and the Bronze Tent. Yeah, so the Bronze Tent, and, a, and it's, is it the Burnished Moon? Or mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's a moon involved, Blood Moon, yeah. possibly. Yeah, and that's just a device. It's like, I've got to get there, yeah. Blood Moon. There's a lot of that going on. Yeah. A lot of things which are thrown in, which are basically 
three pe- two to three page lifespan lifespan MacGuffins. Yeah. In order to basically get to the next point in the yeah, quest, the next MacGuffin. Yeah. A lot of that going on. Yeah. But he hooks up with Alnat Kreb, a dream thief, who's a top fella, dresses nicely. Bit less patronising than Una. Bit less patronising. And he takes it upon himself to help the girl by going into her dreams. Yeah. And her father thinks, ah, this is the dream thief I sent for. Yeah. Alnat Kreb comes a cropper, shrivels up like an old prune. Loses essence. Loses his essence. Mm. And we find out where his essence has gone. Yeah. A little bit later on. And then Una Person, sorry, Una Person, Una the Dream Thief, yeah, getting ahead of myself, yeah, Una on. the Dream Thief turns up and says, oh no, I was the one you was waiting for. No, oh, I'll knock. Yeah. Oh, oh. He's rubbish. Yeah. So basically, the, the thing that they're trying to find is the pearl. Mm-hmm. Is it the per- pearl at the heart of the world? Or yes. Or just make that up? Go wants the pearl to basically get a seat on this uh, council, doesn't yeah. he? So he's like a bit of a, Bit of a rubbish it's politician. It's all power moves. Yeah. It's all power moves. And he thinks Elric a bit of a sorcerer, so, yeah. he, so he sends him. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's the quest, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that is the quest. So Alnak Kreb is dead. Yeah. Una's turned up. Yeah. So here we are. I think we probably just need to discuss Una briefly. Because, of course, it's, it's actually Una's first appearance on the podcast because we haven't got to cure for cancer yet and Una person isn't in the final programme. Nor have we done the White Wolves some no, that's bits right. as well. And Una, in this case, isn't spelt U-N-A, it's spelt double O-N-E. N-A. N-E, yeah, double O-N-E. Una. No, it's with an A. Is it a, well, well, here we go. This Ooh. is our first difference. Because I'm reading from the revised text from 2013, which is in the Golanx paperback. No, no, I think you are right. Oh, how disappointing. I thought we'd actually come across something interesting there. Um... Una. No, you are right. Yeah. Double O N E. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. Yeah. So it's her first appearance on the podcast, and there's another character coming up with the same case, but a really, really important Michael Mocock character. And actually, Una is a huge character in Mocock's ongoing uh, oeuvre. From this point onwards, this is written in 1989. Just about everything he writes, multiverse-related from that point onwards, features Una yeah, or the Dream was, Thief. Wasn't Una in Final Program? I thought Una Person was in the Final Program. Yeah, she, she, no, no, she doesn't appear in the Final Program it's at not, all. It is the second book. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, yeah. Pure of Cancer onwards, she becomes one of that rotating cast. Yeah. And she features in some form or other in... Um, the Von Beck books, she yeah, pops yeah, up. Yeah. She's in the White Wolf's Son books, the Moonbeam Roads trilogy. I think she's also in the the Blood ones as well. The Blood she? trilogy. Yeah. But actually, this, this is the first appearance of a really, really critical and important character who features in Von Beck. And yeah. all of this stuff starts to cross over. And if we roll Una into Una Person from the second, third and fourth um, Jerry Cornelius novels, and of course The Adventures of Una Person and Catherine Cornelius in the 20th century. Which I've never read. Yeah. You will do that at some point. Mm. She is one of the most prolific Michael Mocock characters around. Yeah, probably. Mm. She's interesting. So you, you've just m- mentioned the, the audio version, as is Irish. Yes. And I'm not sure I read it like that, but, you know, audio interpretations, you know, they're never quite... Well, I think they, they have to have that difference differentiation between the characters, don't they? Sometimes yeah. it's quite hard if you've got four or five people talking yeah. one after the other. Yeah. This, this is a 
a funny chapter for me because when I was preparing, I read it again and I had to read it a day later as I forgot most of it because it comes across in one way as a bit dull because it's several pages of Una explaining dream thievery. Yeah, that's what I had as well. It's mm. kind of, she's the basil exposition of dream yeah. thievery, isn't it? It's like, it's a chapter spent to establish some new rules Yeah, for, for the saga. And I don't know if it, it might even come across as a little bit clunky and dry just because there is so much exposition in it. And Mocock's never normally dry. It's nicely written, but it is just so much exposition. It's a ma- massive amount of like paragraphs, which are just and it's another. And it, it, Elric's a bit of a simpleton yeah. bit as well, isn't he? He's like, oh, yeah, oh, <laughs> yes, yeah. And he, he keeps asking various questions, and she's going, "Oh yeah, I want you on this quest because you know you've got a sorcerous background." So yeah. she's looked at his CV and gone, "He'll do." Uh, sorcerous background, yeah. massive um, weed, yeah. Um, <laughs> Massive sword. Yeah, totally emo. Yeah. Can't do anything without murdering people. Dressed like a bear. Dressed like a bear. Yeah. Yeah, but that said, I think it does serve a purpose because as it goes along, I, st- I started to warm up to this part. Yeah, I, There's lots and lots of good stuff in it. I think the the, the quest that... So, so basically, when, when I was rereading it, it reminded me of Inception. Mm. So, so basically, you know, they're going into someone's dream. Yeah, they're going to somebody's consciousness steal a dream aren't they which is inception pretty much isn't it yeah but then when she was going through all of the the different levels in the dream world i was like right okay that really reminds me of dante's inferno yeah and then i was trying to think of like the carl jung kind of archetypes as well so i was kind of reading around that again yeah and some of it is very much the same as Dante's Inferno, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, right. I'm, I'm going to read Go some on. of that. But let's just have a look at uh, the start of this chapter. And it says, uh, Una removed a date stone from her mouth and dropped it into the sand of the silver flower oasis. She reached her hand towards one of the brilliant cactus flowers, which gave the place its name. She stroked the petals with long, delicate fingers. She sang to herself, and it seemed to Elric that her words were a lament. Respectfully, he remained silent, sitting with his back to a palm tree, looking to the distant camp and its continuing activity. She had asked him to accompany her, but had said little to him. He heard a calling from the Kasbah high above, but when he peered in that direction, he saw nothing. The breeze blew over the desert, and red dust raced like water towards the ragged pillars on the horizon. It was almost noon. They had returned to the Silver Flower Oasis that morning, and the few remains of Alnac Kreb were to be buried with honour. Sorry, burned with honour according to the customs of the Baradim that night. Una's staff was no longer slung on her back. Now she held the dream wand in both hands, turning it over and over, watching the light on its burnish and polish, as if she had only now seen it for the first time. The other wand, Alnax, she had tucked into her belt. It would have made my task a little easier, she said suddenly. <laughs> if Alnax had not acted so... I'm not going to do that. Yeah. If Alnax had not acted so precipitously... He did not realise I was coming and was doing his best to save the child, I know. But a few more hours and I could have used his help. Perhaps successfully. Certainly, I might have saved him. So they have a lot of conversations about what went on and she summarises that he lost all essence. Instead of stealing a dream, he was robbed of his own. She paused and spoke quickly, as if she feared she would regret her words. Will you help me, Prince Elric? And yes, so she thinks... that. The the reason she's asking, apart from the fact that he's protagonist of the story, she's asking Elric for his help because, I don't know, is it because he has some kind of sorcerous background? Um, We found out later on it's just because he can use a sword and help her fight her way through. She she says 
because of his background in dealing with different realities, isn't yeah, it? and and kind of the the sorcery of the young kingdoms is is trying to put your will on yeah. chaos, isn't it? Yeah, so, but it's but yeah, it's a bit tenuous. Yeah, it's a bit like well, you'll do. It was, I was going to ask the other guy, but yeah. he's, he's dead now. Yeah, and I think there is a chapter coming up where things get a little bit sticky and his ability to butcher people with a sword, even when he hasn't got Stormbringer, tends, tends out to be yeah, yeah. quite handy. Yeah, yeah. So she explains all sorts of other things as well. She explains the Dream Thief's Code. Yes. A Dream Thief does exactly what the title implies. We steal dreams. Originally our guilds were true thieves. We learn the trick of entering the worlds of other people's dreams and stealing those which were most magnificent or exotic. Gradually, however, people began to call upon us to steal unwanted dreams, or rather the dreams which entrapped or plagued friends or relatives. So we stole those. Frequently the dreams themselves were in no way harmful to another, only to the one who was in their power. Elric interrupted. Are you saying that a dream has some material reality, that it can be seized like a volume of verse, say, or a money purse, and slipped free of its owner? Essentially, yes. Or, I should say, our guild learned the trick of making a dream sufficiently real for it to be handled thus. She now laughed openly at his confusion, and some of the care went away from her for a moment. There is a certain talent needed, and a great deal of training. And Elric says, but what do you do with these stolen dreams? Why, Prince Elric, we sell them at the dream market twice a year. Yeah, of course. It's all about capitalism. That's right. There's a fine trade in almost any sort of dream, no matter how bizarre or terrifying. There are merchants who purchase them, and customers who would buy them. We distill them, of course, into a form which can be transported and later translated, and because we make the dreams take substance, we are threatened by them. That substance can destroy us. You see what happened to Alnac. It takes a certain character, a certain cast of mind, a certain attitude of spirit, all combining, to protect oneself in the dream realm. The dream realms? The dream realms. The realms. But because we have codified these realms, we have also, to a degree, made them our own to manipulate and it got, just goes, there's loads of this. Yeah, yeah. And you do think the, the poor buggers are had to um, translate that into role-playing rules. It's been there <laughs> yeah. for ages going. Yeah. Uh... yeah, what I should have actually done, and maybe I'll do this as a little follow-up, The I think the Mongoose Elric of Melnibane rules for RuneQuest 2 do have an extensive section on Dream Thieves. Yeah, they did, I think. Yeah. And I think Stormbringer 5th Edition might... As well, but I yeah, can't remember. I think you might have thrown that in as well, mm, I think. Yeah, we'll have to take a look at those. Which would never work, would it? Because if, <sighs> yeah. if you want to, one of you is a dream thief, the rest of them would be like, oh, I'll just sit here then while you're thieving around. Yeah, I think you would have to have uh, a campaign or certainly a few games specifically focused upon dream thieving. Because <laughs> if you've got a dream thief in the party, yes. you know what they're going to do, occasionally do a dream escape type thing yeah. but, but even then what do they do an adventure I think you would, you would have to have a game completely composed yeah of a setup around dream thievery but you mentioned earlier on about the layers yeah the, the, the realms yeah of the dream world yeah so they're having a philosophical discussion about the malleability of creation about law and chaos and Elric says I'm sufficiently curious now madam you spoke of your laws what are they and she says some are instructive some are descriptive. First, I'll tell you that we have determined every dream realm shall have seven aspects which we have named. By naming and describing, we hope to shape that which has no shape and control that which few can begin to control. By such impositions, we have learned to survive in worlds where others would be destroyed within minutes. Yet even when we perform such impositions, 
even that which our own wills define, can become transmuted beyond our control. If you would accompany me and aid me in this adventure, you must know that I have determined we shall pass through seven lands. The first land we shall call Sadanor, the yeah, land of dreams in common. I wrote them down. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The second land is Marador, which we'll call the land of old desires. The third is Paranor, the land of lost beliefs. The fourth land is known to dream thieves as Kelador, which is the land of forgotten love. The fifth is Imador, the land of new ambition. And the sixth is Falador, the land of madness. Been there a couple of times. Mm. Yeah. yeah, usually on mushrooms. Yeah, and then you've yeah, got bad the, times. The, we've got all of those, then we've got another one which we do not name. Mm. The unknown one. Uh, why, why don't we name it? This goes on for fucking yonks. It really does go on for pages and pages. Of yeah, it. and I think in the amount of time it takes just to explain all this, it's about half the length of the Dreaming City. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and then even when they get to... So, so they they do the dream thievery bit. So they, they yeah. go into, into how in mm. the girl's dream. And even then there's... Realms even oh, before that. we'll get to all that, good yeah. God. But do you get the sense that this might have originally originated as not an Elric novel? Oh, totally. All? That's what I was thinking when I was reading it. I was yeah. like, he's obviously had this idea about dreams and the dream world and how interesting that would be, and probably Unu was the main character in it. And they went, yeah. right, how am I going to sell this? I'll lob Elric into it. Because, mm. yeah, he, in book two... He's pretty useless, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, in book one, he's pretty useless. Yeah. You know, he gets tricked by a fat-fingered weirdo, doesn't yeah. he? And goes, oh, poison, yeah. my lord. And then book two, he's pretty much a spare wheel. He is entirely a passenger yeah, yeah. for much of this. Yeah, yeah. And which is interesting. You've, you've got to have a POV character, obviously. Yeah. But I don't know. It just feels like this might have originated as somewhat something else, and then he kitbashed it into being an Elric novel by bunging a, a framing device of Quasar's heart at the other end. Yeah, I think that. I yeah. totally think that. I yeah. think even because uh, you know, on mine it's got the uh, the first new Elric novel for over a decade. Yeah, which is a big selling point. Isn't yeah, it? that's why we bought it. If yeah, it yeah. was like the uh, the first. In a Dream Thief book, you'd be yeah. like, I'd still read it, yeah, but you course. probably wouldn't have been as excited, really. Yeah. And we should, or I, I certainly should point out, I don't want to come across as being overly negative on this, I've, but I think it's all just interesting points to discuss. But I enjoyed this a lot more reading it now than I did when I read it in 1989. Yeah. I struggled a, with it in 1989. This is the third time I've read it. Mm. And I do think. You're probably right, the POV character should have been Una, really. Yeah. And it's the same with Revenge of the Rose, because the, the main character in Revenge of the Rose is obviously Rose, yeah. and Rose von Beck. Mm. And the way he writes her, mm. she's the POV character, Yeah, I think. And I think it's a similar thing with this. It's yeah. The character he cares most about is probably Una. It's peculiar, because Moorcock always wanted to be seen as a feminist author, yeah. in inverted commas. You know, despite the problems with the original ending of Gloriana, which he rewrote after criticism, I think, from Andrea Dworkin, which, fair enough, really? he, put, he put his hand up and said, you know what, you've got a point there. And so, unless you've got, I think, the first edition, or the first, one of the first couple of editions of Gloriana, you've got the original ending. And we'll cover that at some point when we talk about Gloriana. I've never read it. Yeah, and he describes himself the... 
Adventures of Una Person and Catherine Cornelius in the 20th century as his failed attempt to write a feminist novel. Right. Sure, I read that at one point, although I'm going back a long time. And what you have with Fortress of the Pearl and Revenge of the Rose, in many ways you have two books where what you could have had was all-new lead starring protagonists. Female internal champion. Female Eternal Champions are, are certainly, by any measure, really interesting female characters with a drive, with a purpose, yeah. who would pass the Bechdel test yeah. and everything else. And Elric could have been a character who passed through those books. Yeah. But they wouldn't have sold. Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. I think. Yeah, and it's and it's a shame. I think there's I think there's a really cracking Una person starring vehicle book here that was kit bashed into an Elric novel. Yeah, so I, I I agree. I, it was weird when I was reading it, and I was thinking exactly the same thing. There's a lot more care and almost love put into that character. Yeah. The, the Elric, because he's obviously nice Elric, as we yeah. call him, he does come across as a bit of a buffoon, doesn't he? He does, but but a nice. I would also say that there are a few short passages in it that really do add a little bit of dimension to Elric beyond him just being a whingy emo doofus hmm. that are are better in this book than most of the others. Yeah, yeah, totally. There's yeah. ones where he's engaged in like sort of a level of melancholia for certain reasons or, or he's thinking about his father or thinking about Cimmeril beyond just, oh, Cimmeril, my love. Yeah, yeah. That, that I think are really effective passages. Yeah, totally. But the, the whole thing about him... Him joining this quest, it's not really for revenge. He's no. doing it to because he keeps talking about the girl yeah. who he's never met, yeah. but you know, there's a symbol. The Holy Girl of the Bower. Yeah, you've yeah. got you know the young lad yeah. back home. Yeah, and then you talk about Simril. So mm. he's doing it to try and save those people, as yeah. opposed to when he's chasing Philip Carner through the. <laughs> through the young kingdoms because he's really annoyed with him. Yeah. Which yeah. is, you know, a bit less rounded. He, he comes across as a, a nicer fellow. And he, he there's a couple of bits in in mm. the in book two, isn't there, where although he's mistaken, he's like, this is the life I could have. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition of the fact that you get a better fleshed out version of Elric where he's general outlook on life and motivations are explored a little bit, but he has no agency as he's no. passing through the story. Yeah. I th- imagine how, how much better it would be if she she was the POV character and she was looking at Elric and kind of giving her perception of, mm. of him. That would be much, much Well, one of the most entertaining parts of the entire multiverse canon is... Elric viewed through Hawkmoon's POV. Yeah. You know, it's hugely entertaining. And yeah. obviously I think that was uh, old school Moorcock in the 70s still writing things at a million miles an hour, unlike this, which I think is a lot more considered, despite yeah, yeah, you know, definitely, yeah. what we've just said. I think actually having a, a a different point of view on Elric would be really, really interesting. Yeah. And it's maybe a missed opportunity in that respect, but... You know, let's let's see how we go anywhere. So we've got Dante's Inferno's related dream section. Yep. I think the the bit where the actually the the part of when he goes into the dream is really well written. Yeah. I thought that was really, really nice. Yes. They hook arms with the young girl either side of him, 
cradle the hooked green staffs over their elbows. And says, Elric felt some trepidation as he obeyed her, but he knew no fear for himself, only the child and her people, for Cimmeril waited for him in Melnibane, for the boy who prayed in Quasarsight that he would return with the jewel his jailer had demanded. Immediately, Elric felt a power possess him, and for a moment it was as if his body grew lighter and lighter until it threatened to drift away on the slightest breeze. His vision faded, yet dimly he could still see Una. She seemed to be concentrated. He looked into the face of the Hurley girl, and for a second thought he saw her skin turn still whiter. Her eyes glow as crimson as his own, and a strange thought came and went in his mind. If I had a daughter, she would look thus. Yeah, I thought that was really... I wrote that down as, like, that's him thinking. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's like, mm, bit of bit of pining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then it was as if his bones were melting, his flesh dissolving, his whole mind and spirit dissipating. He gave himself up to this sensation, as he had determined he must, since he now served Una's purpose. And now the flesh became flowing water. The veins and blood were coloured strands of air. His skeleton flowed like molten silver, mingling with the holy child, becoming hers then flowing on beyond her, into caverns and tunnels and dark places. Into places where whole worlds existed in hollowed rock, where voices called to him and knew him, and sought to comfort him or frighten him, or tell him truths he did not wish to learn. Then the air grew bright again, and he felt Una beside him, guiding him, her hand on his, her body almost his body, her voice confident and even cheerful, like one who moves toward familiar danger. Danger which she had overcome many times, yet there was an edge to her voice, which made him believe she had never faced a danger as great as this one, and that there was every chance neither of them would return to the bronze tent or the silver flower oasis. And there was music, which he understood was the very soul of this child turned into sound. Sweet, sad, lonely music. Music so beautiful he would have wept had he anything more than the airiest substance. Then he saw blue sky before him, a red desert stretching away towards red mountains on the horizon, and he had the strangest of sensations, as if he were coming home to a land he had somehow lost in his childhood, and then forgotten. So, oh, they're into the dream realms. That's ace, I think. Great, isn't it? Really, really good. And it has, that, it has that, it still has that sense of melancholy where he's yearning for his childhood, and that's yeah. referenced quite a few times. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. really good. No, I really, yeah, when I was reading that, I was thinking, yeah, that's really, that's really good quality. Mm. It's a shame that you have to go through, like, four pages of, dream thievery exhibition yeah exposition yeah and there, there is a lot of that when i was reading it, i was thinking this really reads like you're reading a dream thief supplement for the elric role-playing game and it's establishing all of the rules for you yeah you know it very it feels like setup but i do think the setup is good it's interesting i think yeah it's a new thing isn't it but elric does come across as well, he's just there and he and yeah. she's just going and this yeah. elric come on yeah it'd be great yeah as as this goes along, this feels more like a Coram book than yeah, I was, an Elric <laughs> book. Yeah, that exact thing, mm. yeah. Especially chapter five. Yeah, because we go into travelogue, quest yeah. mode, don't we? Where um, things are thrown in. It's like remembering when we were reading The Knight of the Swords, where it's like, oh, look, here's a galloping bunch of orange dudes on six-legged horses with yeah. barbed lances. Yeah. Big fight, oh, they're all dead. Yeah, shouting, woo! <laughs> yeah. yeah, oh, they're all dead, move yeah. on. Oh, this one's got one massive eye yeah. and one small eye. Yeah, and there's there's a whole lot of that going on here. There was quite a bit of that in Mad God's Amulet as well, but more, all of that seemed to connect a little bit I more like back Mad to God's the Mad Amulet. God. I really like it. So you've got that core of it. Yeah, I love yeah. Mad God's Amulet. It was brilliant. Throbbing Bridge. Yeah, amazing. Throbbing Bridge. Fantastic. Yeah. We need more Throbbing Bridges in our lives. We do. But in terms of this, I think at the time, Mocock writes this in 89. 
three years after he wrote City in the Autumn Stars. And this reminds me of City in the Autumn Stars quite a lot. Yeah. But for reasons I can't really put my finger on because I haven't read it for 30 years. No, but I remember really reading City in the Autumn Stars and thinking, this is just, he's going through the middle march. Yeah. And I... the stuff thrown in for fun that occurs and it's gone in two pages and there's something else and something else. There's also Warhound else. as well, going through hell and yeah. all that. So there's a lot of similarity. Yeah. And then Dragon in the Sword. Dragon in the Sword. Dragon in the Sword, I think, was written in 87. So City in the Autumn Stars is 86. Dragon in what, the Sword is 87 or 88. War... Warhound of the World's Pen was like 81. Yeah, yeah. And he got Dragon in the Sword. So over the space of four or five years, he writes City in the Autumn Stars, he writes Dragon in the Sword, he writes this, then a couple of years later he writes Revenge of the Rose. Revenge of the Rose, I think, is just the best. Yeah, they're amazing. And and I think Revenge of the Rose is probably the culmination of him writing this style of story. Yeah. Where he's constantly moving through different worlds and different scenarios and different setups. But Revenge of the Rose feels like a strange combination of all the best bits of City in the Autumn Stars, Dragon in the Sword, because there are similarities between Dragon in the Sword yeah, and Revenge of the Rose. It? Yeah. yeah, it's almost like a prequel to that, yes. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so th- those four books, in a way, feel of a whole. Th- this feels more of a whole with those books than it does with the rest of the Elric saga. And I know Revenge yeah, of the to- Rose is part totally, of the Elric yeah, saga. Yeah, yeah. You know, so if you were going to put, these, put this in a slipcase with three other books... Yeah, probably right. I yeah. put it with City in the Autumn Stars, Dragon in the Sword, and Revenge of the Rose. Yeah. yeah. Dragon in mm. the Sword, I, I still like. Yeah. I really There's that, lots I love of it. really good bits to it. Yeah, it's great. And that's when the that, that was when he brought the modern Von Beck in there as well. Yeah, that's and you, when the Von Becks. That's right. And is that the one where he, Nazi yes. German is in it as well? Yeah, that's the first Hitler's time they draw that it. into it. Yeah, Hitler's in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's and the Holy stuff. Grail. Yes. So that's when he connects the Eternal Champion stories with the Von Becks, isn't it? Yeah. Dragon in the Sword. And every time I read the text in this and it said Holy Gale, I read it as Holy Grail. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's another MacGuffin, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's another MacGuffin, but the, the Gale really is. She's the same kind of MacGuffin as the Holy Grail. And also she? the Rune Staff kid. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Right, well, we're on to chapter two. Sir Lawrence of Burfield. Oh, God. Let so drink this one. I think... We can either roll a d6 and ignore it if it's a four, or we can slide. I'm merely a guest at Jerry and Tom's. Uh, well, it's, it's my turn to roll it's anyway. It's quite strict bar rules. We'll know. make a decision. It's, it's a, a four. four. I'll re-roll. It's a five. It's a five. <laughs> so there you go, sir. What have we gone for? We have got uh, the uh, the naughty and nice Whipped Nugget Chocolate Stout. Definitely at not. A gentle seven percent. <laughs> Definitely not so, a milky way. Gentlemen, start your engines. Yeah. I said gentlemen. Laws. Yeah. Start your engine. Yeah. Oh, it's dark. It's thick. <laughs> Potentially syrupy. <laughs> dark and thick. Like. Not a lot of head on it. Yeah, but you're pouring it properly. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah, you've got an enormous head. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> that's because, my lord, you have a woman's glass. <laughs> exactly. Cheers. Cheers. So after a Turkish delight sour, how is this going to go? I'm not getting a Milky Way. No, it's very sweet. Yeah. Possibly too sweet. But I guess if I've bought five outrageous stouts based upon chocolate bars, mm. complaining about that is a fool's errand. It's almost we need like a, a bowl of eating <laughs> either pickled onions or jalapenos to eat between yeah. the beers. I think you're probably right. Just then it'll just take away some of the edge of the, the sweetness, I think. Yeah, I do have a jar of pickled onions over there. I should have put them in a bowl, shouldn't I? Although, 
is it great podcasting to so just listen to someone going crunch, crunch, crunch? There's, there's a market for it, not necessarily <laughs> our market. I wonder if the I wonder if the Waves Restoration plugin will eradicate all sounds of pickled onion crunching. Anyway, well, we'll we'll come to that. We'll come problem. to that if if we end up doing it. But yeah, yeah actually, it's all right. Better than I expected. Well, it's nice. Yeah. It, it's one of those things where you wouldn't drink a lot of it. No, and I think previously we have been dragged down the. Unpleasant Porter hmm. um, alleyway quite a lot. I don't think we've actually done that many stouts. We've been dragged by our hair down the Porter alleyway. I we think. have, and I think in book one of Fortress of the Pearl, we had that smoked Russian oh. Imperial stout, which oh, was horrific. quite possibly one of the worst beers. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably one of the worst experiences of my life, to be honest. It was beyond beer, that, wasn't yeah, it? It was it like, was. why, why, Lord? Why yeah. would you do that? Yeah. Anyway. Yes, they're in the dream world. And, of course, he's had to leave Stormbringer behind. Cap takes Stormbringer yeah, to the dream I world. I made that very point as well. So, yeah, this is the first adventure yep. of some... Well, it's probably the first adventure without Stormbringer, isn't it? Other than the first part of Elder yeah. Kill Lebanon, yeah. And they but even then he had... lobbed into the sea. Yeah, it was, yeah. Did he have um, El Albeck's... He did, yeah. Albeck of Malador's sword. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, Stormbringer's first say was a bit miffed by this. He was a bit cross, wasn't he? He was, yeah. yeah. He grumbled. Yeah. So chapter two, in the marches at the heart's edge. This this uh, this was, yeah, I think you, we both read the same thing where yeah. he's more cocks writing tips when he's talking about juxtapose like two things yeah. together to create a location or something. Yeah. Does that here, yeah. Birthplace of the bone. Yeah. So they're talking about that. So this this area could be the birthplace of mankind. Ah. Yeah. But obviously all it goes. Well, let's show it some myth. So it starts, he says, As Elric felt his bones reform and the flesh resume its familiar weight and contour, he saw that the land they had entered seemed scarcely any different from that which they had left. Red deserts stretched before them, red mountains lay beyond. So familiar was the landscape that Elric looked back, expecting to see the bronze tent. But immediately behind him now yawned a chasm. So vast, no further side could be seen. He knew sudden vertigo and checked his balance. Somewhat to win his amusement. The dream thief was dressed in her same functional velvets and silks and seemed a little amused by his response. Aye, Prince Elric, now we are indeed at the very edge of the world. We have only certain choices here, and they do not include retreat. I had not considered it, madam. Looking more closely, he realised that the mountains were considerably taller and were all leaning in the same direction, as if bent by a tremendous wind. They are like the teeth of some ancient predator, said Una, with a shudder of one who might actually have stared into such a maw at some time in their career. Doubtless the first stage of our journey takes us there. This is the land we dream thieves always call Sadanor, the land of dreams in common. Yeah, the land of dreams in common. Sadanor. Yeah. Yet you seem unfamiliar with the scenery. The scenery varies. We know only the nature of the land. It may change in its details, but where we travel is frequently dangerous, not because it's unfamiliar, but because of its familiarity. That is the second rule of the dream thief. Oh, mate. Oh, Tell me about it. I you thought we'd got over all you, that. Imagine travelling with it. You're like, oh, <laughs> mate, come on. Yeah. You, you've said that. We know. But Each- she asked Elric how he was feeling, and he admitted to his own surprise he had lost no energy. For perhaps the first time in his adult life, he had the sense that he was physically as other people, yeah. able to sustain himself without calling on any form of artifice. It occurs to me, he said, that I might be well advised to make my home here. Ah, 
Now you begin to fall into another of this realm's traps. Oh, mate. She said lightly Rule enough. three. At first there is suspicion and maybe fear. Then there is relaxation, a fear. A feeling that you've always belonged here, that this is your natural or your spiritual home. These are illusions common to the traveller. And yada, yada, yada. I'd, I'd, yeah, for me, it's like, really, let's just get on with it. Yeah. I, I kind of, I do kind of like that, though, because... Whilst she, you know, Una is being really boring and going, ooh, hang on, mate. <laughs> there is something really identifiable with Elric's feelings around this because I've woken from dreams and, like, semi-consciously you lament for a few seconds or a short while that you're no longer in the dream. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like a, a sense of intoxication that's ripped away when you wake up. So Elric is, it, it, I think it's really identifiable that Elric's in this world and he feels good and he he doesn't feel like he does waking up and thinking, oh shit, where are my herbs? He feels normal, he feels warm, the stuff around him is weird, but he feels like a real person, something that he's never really felt like. And you can sense the intoxication in that. And that's some of the best stuff in this part yeah, of the yeah. book, um, because... is, is Elric when you get in a sense that he's intoxicated with something in the dream realms that makes him feel a sense of loss for something that he's never had. Well, I mean, he's, he's an albinism, or yeah. he's, in fact, he's an albino. He's, he's kind of, he doesn't feel like able-bodied or, yeah. you know, that's the thing, isn't it? He's dealt with this all his life and he's always been seen as a weakling. And yeah. So in a way, yeah, I get it. Yeah. And the, the fact that he doesn't need Stormbringer, mm. which is, you know, the evil part of him pretty much, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking, you know, even though we don't get any Stormbringer part two, which makes El- Elric a more interesting character, we will get the payoff <laughs> for that in, in part three, won't oh, we? Oh, they all get it. Yeah. Yeah. Which I remember reading it at the time thinking, yeah, that was the best part of the book. Yeah, but I, I don't do, know. Yeah. I'm rereading it now thinking, maybe I'm, I'm reevaluating that because I, I, I like all this stuff, Elric being sensing and feeling. Not and... a psycho murder hobo. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Not like, oh, my sword's killed my best mate again. Uh, Sheath it, yeah. walk on, yeah. go to the pub. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Put on some new pantaloons. <laughs> I'll be right. Well, on the subject of sartorial uh, descriptions. Mate, honestly, seriously. I, I remember this bit. <laughs> when I first read this bit, right, I was like, oh, that is terrible. <laughs> And then when I've read it recently, I thought, it's worse than terrible. It's just, mate, what, why? What? Well, you know what I read it, I think, I I wish that I could carry that off. The, the, I'll, I'll go for this description. Do because, it. Um, it does stick with me. Do it. Elric turned and, to his surprise, saw a small man whose sharp, merry features were shadowed by an enormous turban of yellow silk. This headdress, at least as wide as the man's shoulders, was decorated with a pin containing a great green gem, and from it sprouted several peacock feathers. Nice. Mm. He seemed to be wearing many layers of clothing, all brightly coloured of silk and linen, including an embroidered waistcoat and a long jacket of beautifully stitched blue patchwork, each shade subtly different from the one next to it. On his legs were baggy trousers of red silk, and on his feet sported curling slippers of green and yellow leather. The man was unarmed, but in his hand he had a startled black and white cat, upon whose back were folded a pair of silky black wings. Ah. 
And anybody who's ever read any mock-up book immediately goes, oh, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. If you've not read any mock-up books before, you go, who the hell's this bloke? Yeah, you go, who the hell is that? But, but just in case you're a fucking idiot. Oh, yes. He says, greetings, sir. You would be the incarnation of the champion on this plane, I take it. I am... He frowned as if he had for a second forgotten his own name. I am something beginning with J and something beginning with C. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, sorry, <laughs> wrong one. Yeah. yeah. It will return to me in a moment, or another name or event will occur, I'm sure. I am your what? Amanuensis, eh? He peered up at the sky. I to look that up. Is this one of those sunless worlds? Are we to have no night at all? This, <laughs> is, this is a strange line. Elric looked to Una, who did not seem wary of this apparition. I did not ask for a secretary, sir, <laughs> he said to the small man, nor did I expect to be assigned one. My companion and I are on a quest in this world. I, I never for a second imagined that a Melnibanean would have a secretary or even use the word in, in normal discourse. And if they did have a secretary... Did they have a uniform, which was like a massive turban or, or like pantaloons and curly slippers? I was just like... It's very odd. Yeah, I d no. Yeah, it's very odd. It says, I'm called Jasper Colinadus, <laughs> and my cat's name is Whiskers. As always. As always. This is Jerry's first uh, Jasper. This is Jerry Stroke Jasper's first appearance on the podcast as well. Jarek Carnelian, yep. et cetera, et cetera. Yep, 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 because we haven't got to was Jerry Connell in the Knight of the Swords? Nope, he's in the Queen of the Swords. Right, so we've not even got to Jerry in the Corums because we've only done the Knight of the Swords. So again, we have an interested introduction to one of the more prolific companions who is like the Ericos of companions, isn't he? Yeah, he he, he remembers half remembers yeah. mostly of the incarnation. He has an awareness. The, of other incarnations. The bit I always had a problem with Jerry. So as a character, he has moments of of kind of being quite interesting. Yeah, he's, he's just quite literal, isn't he? Yeah, he's a bit like, yeah, my job, I'm companion to champions. It's yeah. like that's not a thing, is it? You know, that's yeah. not a job. It's yeah. like you just, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I jarred with me a bit when I was first reading the Corum books. But anyway, yeah, th th this is possibly for me. I don't get it at all. I don't know. It's it's. It's a standard Jerry appearance in many ways. He appears, he spouts vague reassurances. He's over-familiar with, cha with the champion, whoever yeah. that champion may be at the time. Yeah. And the champion scratches the head and thinks, who is this knobhead? Yeah. Um, but then just thinks, well, actually, he's my best mate. Brilliant. But that's the thing. When, he, when he's kind of, even when Jar Jasper's talking throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, we're reading it as a reader going, God, this bloke's a knobhead. Yeah. You know, I wish he'd just fuck off. <laughs> And Elric's I'm not. I'm thinking I wish I could carry off oh, that Yeah, girl. apart from the girl. Yeah. You, but you, you, and Elric's going, oh, I'm really warming to him. Although it makes no sense, you know, what he's saying to me is really warming my heart. Yeah. It's like, no, it isn't. He's just talking nonsense. Yeah. For me, I mean, th this particular chapter for me, it doesn't, it doesn't it enhance anything, I don't think. No, and it's an odd combo. It's traditional Mocock quest stroke travelogue. But the whimsy, yeah, the whimsy of the bit is what, what winds. I, I don't know if that's to try and set us up for the dream. Dreamlands are whimsical, mm. which is fine. But I mean, hell's teeth. Yeah, it's like 
I don't know, Murcock's think some of his influences are coming more to the fore in this. There's, you know, the Mervyn Peak comparisons and... Yeah, but, but I don't know. Yeah, but the Mervyn Peak stuff was all... It's quite dark and, and gothic, isn't yeah. it? I think this, for me... So, so I mean, what what? But, but, but Mervyn Peak, you would get these these odd characters in the household staff. Yeah, you would. Yeah, like, who would be verbose and ridiculous, but also quite well rounded and yeah. and have a point. Mm. I think it, for for me, this this whole chapter when he when he arrives, he starts talking nonsense. Yeah, produces a map which I'm not having. So it's it. <laughs> so he goes, hang on a minute, pulls a map out of his uh, voluminous kind yeah. of uh, sleeves. And they just happen to have a map of this particular realm, which, yeah. which is a bit unlikely. J- Jerry always turns up and acts as some kind of deus ex machina in some kind yeah, of situations, yeah. doesn't he? But rarely has he acted as such an obvious key to unlock the way as they encounter some obstacles, as he does in this chapter. Oh, yeah, but it's so like, obvious. He, ro- he rocks up, there's a couple of obstacles... They're overcome because of his presence. In this case, it's Whiskers. Yeah. Whiskers, just for whatever reason in this, is has superpowers. It's super Whiskers. Yeah. So he just ponces about in his awesome clobber. Whiskers does the work. Yeah. And they... I, I did like the bit with him admonishing the bird monster. Oh, I hated that. Jack Three Beaks or oh, whatever his mate, fucking name. Jack Three Beaks. So, so, I mean, basically, for anybody who's not read it, what happens is they're going through... Is it? I've got Malador in my head, and it's yeah. not obviously. It's uh, Sanador. 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 The dream of whatever's. So the the, the plowing through there, and then a massive crow. Yeah. Is it a raven? Three headed bird. A three headed bird appears and starts attacking Una, and it's quite for for me. It was quite. It won't brilliantly kind of described so you just suddenly go a massive bird yeah there's una yeah i don't know where elric is he's yeah. probably just stood on a i don't know what he's doing to yeah. be honest so he goes oh shit a massive bird yeah then we have jerry yeah uh, sorry jasper jasper saying uh it was then that jasper colinidas that's probably a bad pronunciation but i'm going with it yeah cried from behind elric jack three beaks you know thou naughty bird <laughs> And that's when I put the book down <laughs> and went to eat a Cornish pasta. Yeah, it's it's a strange one, and Whis- Whiskers does the work. And all, all Jasper seems to do is it says things like Jasper Colnado took this opportunity to stop and remove his slippers, shaking sand <laughs> from them as Una waited ahead of them, her stance impatient. And there's a lot of that. Then there's you know he's talking about different. Ver- Versions of the world, flat, half spheres, oval, circular, shit like cubes. He's there purely to describe to Elric how the world can be different and unusual. But we know yeah. that already. We don't need Jasper Colonnades to turn up and do this. Yeah. And it's that the same thing happens again towards the end of the chapter where they get to where they're going, a pass, which leads to the next gate. And there's a horseman there in some kind of weird but pearlescent burn armor. Yeah. And he thunders down on Elric with his lance, and then Whiskers flies and gets in his face, and he falls off a cliff. Yeah, that'll learn him. That, and it's like, oh, well, there was threat for a second that got it, and it's like, oh, it's, no, it's done. But there, there is no threat. So, so there's like a massive bird with yeah. three heads, which, you know, if it's a Harryhausen thing, you yeah. can get that. That'd be quite a good fight, wouldn't it? Yeah. Throw a few Skellingtons in, yeah. bobs your undies. Hmm. Yeah, that'd be good. But but you've got this like massive bird attacking Una in the distance. Oh, it goes, oh, I haven't got any weapons. Mm. I'll just look for a stone or something. Yeah. And then um, the cat attacks the massive bird after yeah. 
Jasper's going thou not a bird. I actually quite enjoyed the him telling the bird off. I thought that was quite amusing. I didn't mind that. It's so amusing, much. but I didn't. It takes me completely out of the story because yeah. it just makes the dream. I think the, the reason behind it is obviously because then he can describe. I was dressed. I'm dressed as a bird because I was having a dream yeah. where I was dressed as a bird with a harem or yep. that kind of stuff. Jack Three Beaks was in the dream. Yep. So now he's he's escaped the dream. I think yeah. that's the only the only thing I can kind of get my head around was that's the reason. So which is fine, but I don't need it. No. It didn't it didn't uh, it didn't move the story on. He wasn't needed. Yeah. All it serves to do is be an entertaining diversion and a plot device to move them past the next gate. Yeah, well, that's the whole five chapters, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, at the end of the day, that's Mocock travelogue quest mode anyway, isn't it? It's just this. This is just a a, a little bit thicker, and you know what? Despite it's whimsical, it's perhaps more artfully or poetically written than mm. his early stuff is. I'm not going to say better, no, but it's it's denser. But for some reason, despite the fact that what it describes would have taken place over three pages in a Hartman book, and this takes yeah. place over like 15, yeah. it somehow feels less substantial for it. Yeah. Because in the old books, those three pages would have rattled by, and before you got a chance to think, this is just filler, Yeah, you moved been, on. But it had been kinetic writing, wouldn't it? It had yeah. been that thing where all the fights were, well, were, you know, quick but yeah. also it'd probably sum up all that stuff in about two two lines yeah and then something good would have happened but yeah. ultimately if you're thinking about it jack three beaks appears mm. taxuna cat attacks the thing yeah. bit of shouting yeah and the the crow dies yeah. for no apparent reason let's yeah. move on to the next service station yeah but even having said all that the fact that perhaps the fact it's overwritten compared to the early stuff not overwritten in general but overwritten compared to the early stuff makes it more apparent and makes it more exasperating there's still part of me that enjoys it like enjoys the ridiculous description of his garb that enjoys the ridiculous scenes of him in this garb admonishing the three-headed monster the the instant dismissal of the warrior on the horse. The fact that at the end of all that, it just goes, oh, that's me done. Yeah. Ooh. Bye then. I can't go any further. Yeah. Why not? Oh, because I can't. All right, all right. <laughs> See you, Jasper. It's, yeah. been, it's been ace. Bye then. And I was expecting him to come up with, uh, you know, when Jerry always turns up, he's like, oh, give my regards to Moonglum, Rakia, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, whoever it was. But of course, at this point... He doesn't he's only him. met Rakia, yeah, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's not met Moonglum. Yeah. I don't know. This this feels in some ways like a gratuitous cameo. Yeah, it's it's that thing of uh it's that fan you know, it, it's the equivalent of fan service. Yeah, it's it's the it's the equivalent of like a Marvel TV show that has mm. Iron Man walking in the background. This would have been Wong. Yeah, it? yeah, possibly. This is the equivalent of Wong popping up in She Hulk or something like that. Yeah, yeah. No, mm. no, no apparent reason. Yeah, but I don't know. I, 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 just thinking about it and talking about it and denigrating it makes me think. But actually, it's not all that bad. It's just a different style. Maybe what I should be doing is just letting this wrap around me rather than comparing it to something he wrote in nineteen sixty-seven. Well, I think the the other side of it is is how you know when you read fantasy. Well, when I read fantasy now and certain authors, they're they're a bit more grounded. 
and that kind of whimsical stuff you don't normally read now. Yeah. So when you read it now, it's like, oh, really? Because, yeah. yeah, I, I don't know. I, I really struggled with Jasper appearing. Mm. And I did when I read it because yeah. I was like, really? Yeah. It just didn't seem to have any point. Yeah. I like elements of it, but it's too throwaway and insubstantial to be a useful part of the story. It's it's just filler. Yeah, it is. And it's filler, but it's also that tick in the box. Because the whole thing about the Eternal Champion book we've talked about before is like when another character's listed, you know, when he's, even when Eric is having like dreams and he's got this massive list of yeah. of his previous incarnations, you read one of them and go, oh, brilliant. Yeah. And try and imagine what they're going to be like. Yeah. Or... But on, on the other hand, you know, Say you come to this book in 1989 or 1990 or 1995 and you've never read any Michael Moorcock at all. And you've read some other fantasy stuff. You've read Dragonlance. Hmm. You've read a bit of Conan. I don't know. You've read some Farfa than the Grey Mouser or something like that. And you come to this. It's easy to be critical of this because we've read shitloads of Moorcock. But if I come to this from Lord of the Rings, Dragonlance, another... Shannara. Shannara, for <laughs> pity's sake. Shannara. And it's interesting, early on, when I did the first episode where we talked about music, I talked to the artist known as Elric, who did all that dungeon synth, and then I talked to Nathan Gouljas, who records uh, thrash metal under the Corum moniker. And when I was chatting to him, we touched on Fortress of the Pearl, and he said... And he's a guy in his 20s, and he said Fortress of the Pearl was the first Michael Moorcock book he ever read, hmm. and it absolutely hooked him on Moorcock, hmm. which I thought was really, really interesting because, of course, yeah. coming from it from an opposite angle and remembering how much I struggled with Fortress of the Pearl at the time made me think of it in a different way. And I thought, right, okay, if you've been reading all this fantasy stuff and you've been reading Robert E. Howard and stuff like that, and then you read The Fortress of the Pearl, I can understand why it would be so appealing to somebody. And that's why it's got a lot of the, the exposition in it, though, isn't hmm. it? Because th- there's a bit where... I think Una's talking about Elric as you're the emperor, you're this, you're yeah. that, yeah, and it's like a, it's a paragraph or or like a paragraph of like speech, yeah, and um and she is talking basically giving the exposition of what's happening, what what's happened to him, yeah, you, know, you were born this, you're yeah. an emperor, you're this, and, and if you've never read the books, then that would make sense because it mm. fleshes out the character, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, but it'd be it'd be really weird if that was the first Elric book you read because you would go, "Who's this kind of Weasley pigeon?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with no agency. Yeah, he hasn't got like a a soul, a soul drinking sword. Yeah, and because he is quite happy go lucky in a lot of ways in this, and he? he's a bit yeah. like, "Oh yeah, everything's great." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, you know what? That was chapter two. Okay, this is Loz and Andy coming from the future. Whilst I was editing this podcast, I realised that when it came to Chapter 2 and Sadanor, the land of dreams in common, yeah. we may have missed a trick when we were being disgruntled with Jasper Colonnades and the appearance of ginormous turbans and 
the kind of deus ex catena of whiskers dispatching monsters. And I think that, to some degree, using modern parlance, Moorcock is trolling the reader, mm. and Moorcock is actually deliberately parodying himself in that chapter. For the following reasons, we, we mentioned the oddness of the simple dispatch of Jack Three Beaks and the knight, and... I think Moorcock is kind of putting Elric in the position of the reader in this, and he's really only observing these fights, because before he even gets to even think about taking action, Whiskers flies in and takes care of things on two separate occasions. Jasper's clothing is ridiculously over the top and exaggerated. A threat's established, then a powerful artefact, in this case, Whiskers, just does away with them with a minimum of fuss. And Whiskers even takes on the nature of the Black Sword when he takes care of Jack Threebeaks. And it's, it's almost like Moorcock's saying, we're in this place, here's the things that are happening, here's the threat. Oh, but it's, it's all over and done with incredibly quickly, with no real degree of threat. It's actually quite lame. Mm-hmm. That is you, my proposition. That your proposition. The, the other bit is the... Uh, when Jasper talks about... I am what your amniusis, no, yeah. um, whatever it is, can't yeah. pronounce it. Yeah. Come back to the pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. So I had to look it up. And it is actually a person employed, employed to write or type what another dictates, which again kind of makes him a literary stooge. I don't know. When I was yeah, yeah, I think, that, I think that's a good way of putting it. When Whiskers takes Jack Three Beaks apart, it says, uh, Una watched in horror as gradually the crow shrank to a tiny wizened thing, and Whiskers at last sat back huge and round and began to clean himself, pairing with considerable pleasure. That's Stormbringer, isn't it? Yeah. So, threat happens. Oh no, how are we going to get over this latest random weird monster encounter? Well, Stormbringer sorts it out in about 35 seconds. And in this case, it's Whiskers. And if that's not enough, it happens again towards the end of the chapter. Elric observes a threat, and then it's dealt with really, really simply and quickly. And it really does feel like this chapter is just Moorcock saying, yes, yeah, it's, it's a bit lame, isn't it? <laughs> Which is actually what, when we were drunk on yeah. our ridiculous, dark, gloopy beers, we were saying this is a little bit lame. So, we were. Yeah, my proposition when I, was, when I was listening back to that and editing it was actually, this is quite deliberate from Moorcock. In this, this land of dreams in common where the problem is things that are familiar. Jasper refers to himself as a manuensis, as you just yes, pointed out. Manuensis, that was the one, yeah. Yeah, why do I need a secretary? Yeah, yes. Yeah. As we've been criticising this for being like a Corum West sequence, yeah. that's exactly what it is, and that's exactly what Mocock's done, and he's made it deliberately over the top and throwaway and silly. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he was ever kind of attempting to write something crap. Hmm. <laughs> it's just, but I think, as we talked about it, it's just that whole unreality of it all, isn't it? Hmm. And it is just almost parody of, of previous yeah. stories, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's something we missed when we were busy rolling dice for 8% disgusting yeah, stats. Yeah. Hmm. I think we need to return to the future, Loz. Yeah, let's do Stop that. interfering.
it's time to roll the dice. We're in D4 territory now, so five or six, roll again. One. One. Hello, Ichbin, Raspberry Berliner. Yeah, right, okay. Which will work nicely as a palate cleanser. Although, after just having had pickled onions, perhaps we'll have gone sorely Absolutely wrong. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. so, so don't worry, I'll have the Gaviscon on tap later on. Ah, I forgot the Gaviscon. The homemade Gaviscon, <laughs> which basically is Bailey's. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, yeah. Although, I don't think we have Bailey's. I think we've got Hotel Chocolat chocolate liqueur mm, sweet sweet um and somebody got me peaky blinders irish cream whiskey liqueur for my birthday or last christmas or something and that is like drinking pure sugar i don't recommend it that rings a bell actually i think i might have got that from um from somewhere well everyone thought... went peaky blinders mental didn't they yeah so all of a sudden you got peaky blinders rum peaky blinders whiskey peaky blinders cream liqueur yeah, some, some one of our friends had a nineteen twenties um, theme party. Mm. I can't remember why. Everybody wanted his Peaky Blinders, of course, apart from me. Yeah, obviously. And you know, at the end of the day, if I'm going to drink drink overly sweet cream liqueur, I want it to have a strange, murderous nineteen twenties organised crime feel with stupid hats. Exactly. Well, that's what that was my thoughts as well. Yeah, raspberry billionaire. Cheers. Ick be nine. After the last one, it's quite acidic, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It is, but I think that I think we probably got this at the right time. Yeah, I think before the yeah, yeah. yeah he says wincing. <laughs> one eye, one eye shut. <laughs> yeah, it's it's what I call a Popeye beer. <laughs> right. Well, while you wince, sorry, right, I'm back. Back in okay. there. Chapter three of Beauty Found in Deep Caverns. Mm. The tunnel began to descend almost as soon as they had entered it. Where it had at first been cool, now the air became hot and humid so that sometimes it seemed to Elric he was wading through water. The little lights which gave faint illumination were not, as he had first thought, lamps or brands, but seemed naturally luminescent. Delicate nerds of soft glowing substance, almost flesh-like in appearance. They found that they were whispering, as if unwilling to disturb any denizens of this place. Any desis of this place. Yeah, Elric did not feel afraid here. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> That's the combination of the bell and, uh, and the big <laughs> The tunnel had the atmosphere of sanctuary, and he noticed that Una too had lost some of her normal caution, though her experience had taught her to be wary of anything as a potentially dangerous illusion. There was no obvious transition from Sadanar to Maradar, save perhaps a slight change of mood, and then the tunnel had opened up into a vast natural hall of richly glowing blues and greens and golden yellows and dark pinks, all flowing one to the other, like lava which had only recently cooled, more like exotic plants than the rock they were. Scents like those of the loveliest, headiest flowers made Elric Feely walked in a garden, None like gardens he had known as a child, places of the greatest security and tranquillity, yet there was no doubt that the place was a cavern, and that they had travelled underground to reach it. At first delighted by the sight, Elric began to feel a certain sadness, for until now he had not remembered those gardens of childhood, the innocent happiness which comes so rarely to a Melnibanean, no matter what their age. He thought of his mother, dead in childbirth, of his infantly mourning father who would refuse to acknowledge the son who, in his opinion, had killed his wife. 
So again, a little bit of melancholia mm. from Elric there. But they're in the land of old desire. There's another one here, which I think is kind of really good part of his character. All of his forgotten yearnings were returning to him, bringing a sense of simplicity and peace. Now he remembered how those sensations would be replaced by anger as he began to realise there was little likelihood of his dreams ever coming true. He had raged at the injustice of the world. He had flung himself into his sorcerer's studies. He had become determined to change the balance of things and introduce greater liberty, greater justice, by the means of the power he had in the world. Yet his fellow Melanobinians... <laughs> Great. I'd refused fellow Bernie Malonians. <laughs> Slightly spoiled. I'd refused to accept this logic. The early dreams had begun to fade, and with them the hope which had first lifted his heart. Now there was the hope offered him again. So that that bit there, it's been a teenager, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Absolutely. It's, this it's... this is super, super relatable because in between those two bits that we've read they have this conversation as well with these people who were who were there and and they're just they're kind of lost to this this part of of the dream realms yeah as they're this this cavern of people clinging to old hopes but stuck in this strange melancholic position and knowing that they can't achieve them yet they reject the hope of something new yeah, they've given up, haven't they? So they've, they've given up, and it's like we liked the old ways and we hope mm. that we can recapture them here, and Elric says, "Well, why don't you?" just yearn to move forward. And they say, oh, no. And it's like, how fucking relatable is that? Well, it's age, isn't it? It's yeah. like the whole thing of, uh, the, you know, the the bit that I just went through with the brilliant pronunciation was a pronunciation. Pronunciation. Yeah. yeah. It was, um, that's youth, isn't it? Yeah. That, that's kind of the, the the joys of youth where you can do all these things. Yeah. But also you've got rage at the world. Yeah. And, yeah, when he when he's talking to the people going, well, why don't you look for the gate? Like, mm. Why bother? Mm. It'd be rubbish. Yeah, it's like, well, why don't you look to the gate? Is like, why don't you move on? Yes, you have these old kind of ideas of, of what was good and comfortable, and you're trying to cling on to them, but you're, you're not moving forward. You're just stuck here in this cycle of regretting that the world is not what you thought it was. It's It's a really great analogy for... Just what a fucking state this country's in at the moment. is yeah. our, our future is being held back by people who are stuck in a cycle of remembering what was once great and refusing to acknowledge that something else could be great too because they want it how it was. Yeah, and but, Elric is almost pulled into this. Yeah, yeah, and, the, and they're kind of bringing the whole thing of aspiring for the safety of kind of nostalgia, aren't yeah. they? It's like, oh, yeah, it was brilliant. And yeah. Well, it wasn't. People had rickets. Yeah, you know, that's right. You know, it's... Yeah, we used to leave our doors open. Yeah, know. of course you did. But you had fuck all, mate. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. That's well, you know, we we never had double glazing when I was a kid. It's like, yeah, it was fucking rubbish. Yeah. Do you remember when it used to frost on the inside of your yeah. windows? Yeah. yeah. Great yeah. days. Great days. Great days. Yeah. But she, she's contemptuous of all this, and she reminds him that this is the land of old desires, not the land of fulfilled desire. And she also points out to him that if he stays here and gets sucked into all of this, then the holy girl will be the one who comes across. Yeah, she really gives him it, doesn't she? She's like, get your shit together, mate. You yeah. Know, you've gone down the this path of melancholic nostalgia and everything would be great if we came mm. here. Nothing would change, and that's the whole problem, isn't yeah. it? If nothing changes. I mean, she, she sums it up, I think, with... Um, Elric says, perhaps we could have rested there, restored our energies, said Elric. 
Aye, and died full of sweet melancholy. So, mm. there you go. Yeah, so she, she shakes him out of it and they move on. There's another nice passage coming up where the pass, Elric's looking off to a big city. Mm. And he, he senses like it could be a city like in Maria. And she said, yeah, it could be in Maria. It could be London. Yeah, it could be Talon. Yeah, there's another name on there as yeah. well where you go, oh, I wonder what that is. Yeah, it could be Talon, could be uh, a whole host of different things. And again, he's he's really attracted to that, and she's like, oh, for fuck's sake, yeah. Elric. She, he's a real drag at this point. He really is, isn't Every he? time something comes up, he's like, oh, this magic is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> there are magic beans at every turn. Yeah. And she keeps having to pull him back onto the main path. But there's a nice bit where he, he gets close and he sees the state of the people trapped inside it. And it's it's, it's it's really good actually. Isn't it? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was reading that bit. The, really the city, cool. and she describes it as the city of inventive cowardice. Brilliant. Yeah, and there's another horseman around. Yeah, there's always a horseman, isn't there? Yeah, probably the same one. Yeah, who just Jeff. keeps on coming back. Yeah, Jeff the horseman. Yeah, who we we found out who Jeff the horseman really is. Yeah, he's not really called Jeff. And we also found out why Una wanted Elric around, really, because it's fight time. Yeah, yeah. It's fight time. And some sorcerer adventurers that never made it out. It's like they're the last vestiges of their presence in the dream world. Because, of course, we know that Lord Gur sent lots of sorcerer adventurers yeah. into the dreamlands and they all came a cropper. Uh, so they come under attack from them. But Elric, I mean, it's, it's a bit throwaway, but I suppose Elric stories need fights. But to be honest, even, even Mike's heart doesn't seem to be in this one. It's a pretty perfunctory We don't have a sword, does he? So he no. gets a stalactite. Or is it a stalag? Kills one with a stalagmite struck, stalactite. Yeah. Nicks his sword yeah. in his poniard. He oozes odd blood. Yeah. And then he nicks his, his sword in his poniard. They engage in fighting, and he finds out that Una is a talented warrior He's as well. She's a bit tasty on yeah, the sword as she well. is. Yeah. So that's all good. Yeah. And uh, there's some other stuff as well. Strange snouted women. Yeah. Well, that that was the thing, wasn't it? It goes from that page, and there's one page which um, was, for me, it ended up like there was like 14 battles described yeah. in one chapter. Yeah. Strange start with women, you know, the mysterious hat of Pat Ferry. Yeah. Probably wasn't in there, but, you know, it was a big list of stuff. It's like they've just gone around, yeah. like, stabbing people. Yeah. When the snout-first women attacked them with nets and spikes, it did not take them long to cut their way free and drive the cowardly creatures off. And neither were they greatly inconvenienced by the vulpine things which lurked on their hind legs and had claws like birds. They even jerked together as they dispatched packs of snapping beasts which resembled nothing so much as horses the size of dogs, and spoke a few words of a human tongue, though without any sense of the meaning. Well, that's cool, isn't it? Yeah. You've got like horses that are the size of dogs, yeah. which is quite cool in a yeah. way. Yeah. Speaking English. But you know what? All that's fine because it leads on to the brass-capped rabbit warrior. Mate. <laughs> Honestly. The Count of Magnus Dor. I've made a few notes about the aforementioned Count of. Mate, what was Tell that? me. What was that all about? So, I mean... Well, my, my mental note on the Count of Magnus Dor, as he's busy throwing his spear into oak trees that scream as he does so... Yeah. yeah. Is... Yes, I love the Count of Magnus Dor, giant rabbit warrior in a brass cap. Yeah, uh, but ultimately the most pointless appearance of anybody ever. <laughs> yeah, literally, but, literally. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. So he, he, he explains that he rules these parts. Yeah. And, and that if they don't turn back, he'll have to fight them. 
<laughs> but, but, but it was then that they heard a yell from the other side of the right pillar, and something white and rearing appeared there. It was another of the pale riders in armour of bone, tortoise shell and mother of pearl, with horrible eyes slitted with hatred, his horse's hoofs beating on a barrier which had not been there when Una and Elric passed through. Then it was down, and the warrior was charging. The albino and the dream thief made to defend themselves, but it was the Count of Magnus Dor who moved ahead of them and jabbed his spear up at the warrior's body. Steel was deflected by an armour stronger than it looked and the sword rose and fell almost contemptuously, slicing down through the brass helm and into the brain of the rabbit warrior. <laughs> he staggered backwards, his hand clutching at his head, his sword and spear abandoned. His round brown eyes seemed to grow still wider and he began to squeal. He turned slowly, round and round, then fell to his knees. Amazing. So... Boo to introduce him <laughs> and killing Magnus Dar in the space of two pages. Boo, I say. Second, I, there's a paragraph which references something. I, I just just before you go, uh, my my kind of whole synopsis of that was he came, he pontificated, he got brained. Yeah, he came, he made some trees scream. <laughs> he went out. He got his, he got his brain smashed yeah. in, and. <laughs> For no apparent reason. So Una embraced him swiftly, then sank... To, oh, she embraced... Elric and Una have started hugging and yeah, embracing quite a hugging. lot. Yeah. Then she sank to one knee to inspect the Count of Magnus Dor. In death, he more resembled a man, for already the hair on his face and hands was fared into grey, and even his flesh seemed on the point of disappearance. The brass helm, too, had turned an ugly shade of silver. Elric was reminded of Alnac's dying. He averted his eyes. Una, too, stood up quickly, and there were tears in her eyes. The tears were not for the Count of Magnus Dor. Elric took her in his arms. He was suddenly full of longing for someone he barely remembered from old dreams, the dreams of his youth. Someone who, perhaps, had never existed. He thought he felt a slight shudder run through Una as he embraced her. He reached out for a memory of a little boat, of a fair-haired girl sleeping at the bottom of the vessel as it drifted out to open sea, of himself sailing a skiff towards her, full of pride that he might be her rescuer. Yet he had never known such a girl, he was sure. Though Una reminded him of that girl, grown up. Is that a reference to something we should recognise? Probably not. No. I think it's probably a... That's un fine, then. Unless it's part of Una's background. Yeah, maybe so. But anyway, the Dream Forest throws some more traps at them. Elric cries about his dad. Yeah. And they have a romantic <laughs> shag. Yeah. Amongst the corpses. Yeah, yeah. Of rabbit warriors. Yeah, yeah. And that that's another one of the things that reminds me, for reasons I can't remember, and I'm going to have to reread it, The City and the Autumn Stars, I'm sure there's odd throwaway anthropomorphic animals in City and the Autumn Stars. I know Reynard the Fox. Uh, Reynard's in it, yeah. In City and the Autumn Stars. So I might be just he like, appears later on, though, doesn't he, in yeah. the other Elric books as well. Right, I'm, I might be mixing a lot of these things up. Is he in the later Elric books, like, round about the time Mrs. House? <laughs> God, oh, we'll, yeah. we'll talk about Mrs. House. Oh, God, yes. We'll talk about again. That's another example of odd whimsy. Yeah, creeping odd, in. Odd whimsy for me. I'm, I'm checking out on that point. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so basically, the count. You know, there he was. I liked him. He I liked could, the cut of his jib. He could have been someone. Yeah, could have been but, a contender. But unfortunately, he was just a knob, wasn't he? He's was just like, oh, this is my realm now. Well, I, I don't, I don't know. There was a knob. I think he was, he was there. He's like, I'm busy making oak trees scream. Who are the, who are these two knobheads? You come here, yeah, yeah. Judge out my forest. No, fight me. Judging, judging me for making these trees scream. Yeah, 
with me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, fight but, me. But what? Why? What, I don't know. What, why? <laughs> Just why? Why any of this? Yeah. this? But but that's the whole thing, isn't it? When I was reading that chapter, I was like, why is he in it? Why has he just been brained? Yeah. What what does it bring to the table? Yeah. Does it bring anything to the table? Is the table over there and I'm not invited to the table? I, I just like giant rabbit man warriors in brass caps. Well, you all do, but you know, he wasn't in it enough, was he? No, he, didn't, he, wasn't. he didn't bring us on his journey, did no. he? If, if we play a fantasy role-playing game at some point in the future, I am going to play the Count. I think you should. Magnus yeah. And if, if I were in a Corum game, I expect him to be in it. Yep. Yeah. Not only will I play him, he's going to really piss you off. Yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah. He's probably going to be called Gerard. Or something. <laughs> yeah. 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 Anyway, sorry. I'll just. Uh, I don't know if eating a pickled onion after that super sour Raptor Bell is a good idea, but I'm going to do it anyway. As sours go, it's quite pleasant. Mm, I like it. It's but, a good summer beer, I think. Mm. And the great thing is. They were in the end of line box for a quid a pop in my beer place. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm. Right. Your beer place. Everybody's beer place. Mm. It'd be elitist about it. Yeah. Anyway, chapter four. Chapter four. The intervention of a navigator. And I've summed this up as a. So when I was looking at it, I was like, how would I sum it up in one sentence? Yeah. My sum up is the stairs. Oh, God, the stairs. <laughs> a heroic flight of stairs. <laughs> That was my kind of synopsis of the whole yeah. the whole piece. Yeah. But first things first, I've got a roll of the deadly dice of wandering beer. So we're in D3 territory now, which makes things slightly easier. So it's four, which means two. Which means... What What do you mean means two? What does well, that one mean? D3. One to two is one. Right. Three to four is two. Three to six is three. The- Derry and Tom's rules are getting more and more confusing. Yeah. It's like Dream Thief rules. It is, there are so it? many of them, you can't keep up. Behold. So we are on Naughty and Nice, Malted Honeycomb, Chocolate Stout. We're back on Stout again. Mm. 6%. Yep, excellent. Near 6%. Let's go. By the power of Grayskull. I've got to say, my head's starting to feel this beer now. But I guess that's the point, isn't it? Well, I suppose it is the point. Mm. Might need some Gaviscon and stroke Bailey. Stroke <laughs> Peaky Blinders. <laughs> Cream liqueur. <laughs> it's close to hand, don't worry. Uh, let me... I'll bring it over in a minute. We could just swig it out the bottle. <laughs> I'll be quiet. Like Gaviscon. You know, I'm, I'm starting to think that these are just lies. Yeah. I think they're just lies. This The other one didn't taste a nugget. It just tasted of chocolate or stout. Nougat. This one didn't taste of honeycomb. It just tastes of chocolate stout. I think just people are taking the piss out of me and you deliberately. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. I think the saw's coming. Yeah, they did. Saw me coming from a fucking mile off. Yeah. Well, this saw's coming as a genre. Yeah. Like, <laughs> These two nubbins will drink anything. <laughs> if it's slightly unusual, they'll well have it. Yeah. Right. Chapter four. Chapter, chapter four. Yes, chapter four. four. The stairs. Oh, God, the stairs. Oh, God, the stairs. <laughs> Surprised by his own lack of confusion. <laughs> Great start. Filled with an apparent clarity. Yeah, Elric steps side by side with Una through the shimmering silver gateway into Imador, called mysteriously by dream thieves, the land of new ambition. Just a quick interjection on the, the names section, yeah. because you know, when you read in the whimsical names, you are a yeah. bit like, oh, please fuck off. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Luckily, Una does explain it, saying, we have to give accurate descriptions 
of the names. Yeah. So then we can own them. So that's why they're all called, you know, the stairs of despair or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. The ladder of mouth <laughs> ind- indigestion. <laughs> yeah. And the land of Gaviscon. <laughs> A slightly acidic twinge. That kind of stuff. Uh, anyway, where I'm currently residing. The they're land. in the land of new ambition. Of course they are. And found himself at the top of an heroic flight of steps. <laughs> exactly, as I said, a heroic flight of steps. Which curved downward towards a plane, which stretched towards a horizon, turned pale, misty blue, and which can almost have mistaken for the sky. Let's just pause it there for a minute, right? So I class myself as, as in a reasonable imagination, so I can visualise certain weird yeah. stuff. How do you visualize the heroic flight of stairs um i visualize it like there's there's a tube station in london with a sign at the bottom of the steps that gives you that warns you <laughs> about <laughs> trying to tackle them it's near university college london i can't remember the name of the tube station but actual you, proper stairs yeah it's a winding staircase yeah it's the um and, covent garden around there isn't it no it's no. it's near it's near ucl it's between ucl and king's cross and when everybody piles off, there's three massive lifts. Yes. And everybody queues exactly for these three lifts. And then there's a spiral staircase that only 25-year-old women who do a lot yes. of step exercise... I, I did it once. ...just run up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and once I walked in and I thought, fuck this, I'm going to try the steps. And I got, I got up about 30 <laughs> steps. I was like... Oh, yeah, they said that there was, like, two million of them and there was a warning sign, and that warning sign was entirely meant for me. So I just, with my head down, like an absolute loser, I went back down those steps again. And, uh, and got, got oh, I'm trying to think which one it is. I'd be in that one as well. Yeah. It's one of the central ones, I'm yeah. sure it is. That is what I would describe as a heroic flight of steps. Yeah. If you haven't been at Monument as well, that's yeah. a heroic flight of steps. Yeah. I can fuck up. Yeah. A horizon 10, misty pale blue, pale misty blue. Now then, when it comes to descriptions of skies, yeah. I've always loved the sky was the colour of a television turned to a dead channel. Best line ever. Best line ever. Yeah. Unless you were born after a certain date, in which case that much means blue. We were talking about this on, on Tuesday yeah. and, and our gaming group because we talked about that being the best line ever. Yeah. Neil Gaiman changed it to in Neverwhere to... He updated it, yeah. but I can't remember what it was, so yeah. it's a really rubbish anecdote. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. To <laughs> anybody who doesn't remember static on yes. television screens, it's it doesn't make any sense because it, means, it says that the sky is really blue. But there's a much yes. there's a nice the replacement really... description of a sky colour. I've got it here as well. Yeah. Coming up in here. For a moment, you thought that he and Una were alone on the vast stairway, and then he saw it was crowded with people. Some were engaged in hectic conversations, some bartering, some embracing, while others were gathered around holy men, speech makers, priestesses, storytellers, either listening avidly or arguing. The steps down to the plane were alive with every manner of human intercourse. Elric saw snake charmers, bear baiters, jugglers and acrobats. They were dressed in costumes typical of the desert lands. Enormous silk pantaloons of green, blue, gold, vermilion and amber. Coats of brocade or velvet. Turbans. Bernouses and caps of the most intricate needlework. No idea. Excellent, I should buy one. Burnished metal and silver, gold, precious jewels of every kind. Animals, stalls, baskets overflowing with produce, with fabrics, with goods of leather and copper and brass. Love it. Love this idea of a 
heroic staircase that's basically just levels and levels and levels of vibrant marketplace. It's a fucking great image. It's a really great description. You know, it reminds me as as well, the condition of music has got um, a description of the the party that they have. I yep. think it, I can't remember if it's New Year. I've not read it for ages. Yeah. Is it New Year or is it just like the end of the it's world? It's like the party? latest version of the three-month-long parties that yeah. happens in every and book. And the description it? of that is beautiful. It's really, really cool. And it, yeah, when I read that, it reminds me of some of the, I don't know, in my head, it reminds me of London Frost Furs when you read mm. about just somebody describing a market anyway. It's yeah. amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It's just really evocative. And you're just like, oh, yeah, I want to go there. Yeah, really cool. The, the sky thing, and it's in chapter five, so I'm skipping ahead slightly. He does describe the sky like diseased pewter, which is oh. amazing. Well, that's one of them. But there's one coming up here where it was the sky was the colour of bad liver gone bad or bad yes, liver. Yes, that's the other one. Which yeah. is also amazing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Both of those things. Yeah. So when I was reading, it, it was like dis- diseased pewter. Yes. Yeah. You wouldn't put those two words together, but you can kind of get it. Yeah. It's. Yeah, really, really good. Yeah. There is... Uh, I mean, we find that although this whole vista looks incredible, that because it's the dream one, something's slightly wrong with it. It's lacking in substance. Like much of the encounter, it looks groovy, but it's hollow because one gets some fruit and... The, the oranges are shit, aren't they? Yeah. It's, it's like... A of nothing. It's, it's like you a tasteless get, orange. It's like when you get one of those baggy satsumas. Yeah. Like being there a while, it's like, yeah. oh... Yeah, yeah, it's no good, is it? Yeah, that's... Yeah, it's yeah. bitterly disappointing. Yeah. But there's an interesting paragraph here after when they're wandering through this uh, this market and this mass of people. It says, She linked her arm in his own. Since their lovemaking in the wood, a sense of considerable comradeship and mutual liking had grown up between them. He knew no guilt. He knew in his heart that he had betrayed no one. And it was clear she was equally untroubled. In some strange way, they'd restored each other, making their combined energy something more than its sum. This was the kind of friendship he had never really known before, and he was grateful for it. He believed that he had learned much from Una, and that the dream thieves would teach him more, and would be valuable to him when he returned to Malnibane to claim his throne back from Yakun. And I think one of the pitfalls of these books being written out of sequence is that events can undermine certain aspects of a character's motivations. If you're reading this in order, and not reading this ten years after you read all the others, like we did, Elric having this intense relationship, sexual relationship with Una, does, I think, take something away from the purity of his purpose later in the saga regarding Cimarill. Mm. Because when you read The Dreaming City, I mean, okay, she's his cousin, but when you read The Dreaming City... um, Slightly problematic. She's his drive to destroy his own city and his own people. Yeah, she gets him. So when you drop in this thing in between those early chapters... Whereas having this fantastic, passionate relationship with Una the Dream Thief just weakens that slightly. It does a bit, and I think it goes without leaping towards the new book. The fact that he's left Sarazinia mm. and his first first two chapters is seeing... Well, that's just... Yeah, but I'm, I'm on the underside of the world. Yeah. I'm in the upside down. It doesn't count. It, yeah, exactly. But yeah. That's, that seems to be a bit of a justification with a lot of it, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, like, it's the same. It's like, yeah. you know what? I'm in the dream realms. I'm only dreaming that I'm a shagging Una. Yeah. 
Yeah, similar will work mind. She'll be all right. She'll, she'll be, be fine with it. What's up? Yeah, similar probably don't mind. She probably Yeah, they're all right, aren't they? She's off the rockers, aren't they? Tapping a servant over the head yeah. with a hammer or something. Yeah, for a laugh. very probably. That's one of the things that made me chuckle a little bit. Actually, when there's a reference to him in the gardens of his youth, it's like, oh, the gardens. Ah, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> anyway, back to the choir of people that have been operated on to make them sing at certain, yeah, exactly. at certain pitches. Yeah, what the, I imagine the gardens to be like Nero's garden where you got people set on fire to light his yeah. way. I, I kind of imagine a Melanie Benin garden being like something out of the Caligula film, where it's like, oh, bring me a slave so I can pour wine into them until they almost explode and then pierce them with a sword and yeah. go, so I can listen to the sound go yeah, exactly. that's what a Melanie Bernie got yeah, custody. but they'd have an orchestra of it but I, I also think if you if you go back to the the original the Elric and Melanie Bay, the Dr. Elric of Melanie Dr. Which is which is how I will pronounce it from now on. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, sorry, do, do go on. <laughs> I don't feel like, like Doctor Jess, yeah. right? So you've got you've got diving Tvo, yeah. diving slow, Elric, yeah, Coon, Doctor Jess, yeah, just seems a bit out there. Yeah, Doctor Diving Tva, Diving Slom. Tangle Bones. Oh, yeah, sorry, Tangle Bones. <laughs> yeah, those two were a bit yeah. like... But I think that was his, his Mervyn Peake yeah. piece. Where it's oh, like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I really need some stupid name Peake. Tangle yeah. Bones. Oh, yeah, he wouldn't sound so bad if his real name was Jeff Tangle Bones. Or Paul. <laughs> or Paul. Yeah, Paul. Well, actually, everybody else called him Paul. He's, <laughs> he's probably around the back with the servants going, he's still, right, he still called me Tangle Bones. <laughs> Fucking do, man. Yeah. Uh, all right, Paul. Yeah. Give us a players. Yeah, same with Dr. Jeff. Yeah. I'm not even a doctor. Yeah. Jess is taking the piss. I'm a torturer. Uh, anyway. Dave. anyway. The, the, the pearlescent warrior's back. Of course he is. Mm. And, and A-up. Yeah. Who is he? Well, we find he's the pearl warrior, but Elric sees something of Alnac Kreb in him. Of course he does. Yeah. yeah. Well, the battle... But without any interference on this occasion, Elric close to being bested until a veiled woman turns up and interferes. Thank goodness. Again. And she calls out. So where are we? It's very similar to the crow thing, I think. She says, Pearl warrior, you must do no further violence to these travellers. The warrior grunted but ignored the woman. His teeth snapped at Elric's throat. He tried to turn the poniard towards the albino's heart. There were f- drops of firming saliva on his lips now, beads of white rim in his mouth. Pearl Warrior! Suddenly, the warrior began to speak, whispering to Elric as if to a fellow conspirator. Don't listen to her. I can aid thee. Why do you not come with us and learn to explore the great steppe, where all the hunting is rich? There are melons, tasting like the most delicate cherries. I can give thee such a wonderful clothing. Do not listen. Do not listen. Yes, I am Alnek, thy friend. Yes. Elric was repelled by the insane babble more than he had been by the creature's horrible appearance and his violence. Think of all the power there is. They fear thee. They fear me, Elric. I know thee. Let us not be rivals. Together we can succeed. I am not free, but thou couldst journey for us both. I am not free, but thou wouldst never bear responsibility. I am not free, but Elric, I have many slaves at my disposal. They are thine. I offer thee new wealth and new philosophies, new ways of fulfilling every desire. I fear thee, and thou fearest me. 
so we will bind us together one to the other. It is the only tie that ever means anything. They dream of thee, all of them, even I who do not dream. Thou art the only enemy. Mm, poor Alnac Kreb. Yeah, he's, he's ended up being a bit of a gibbon, isn't he? Yeah, it's a bit yeah. sad, isn't it? But the, the whole thing of the melons will taste like cherries, you don't want that, do you? It's a bit odd, isn't it? It's like, mm, really? I don't know. I mean, if you like cherries, a melon mm. that tastes like a cherry is probably good, yeah, but why not just have a cherry? Yeah, exactly. Why not have a cherry the size of a melon? Now he's talking, he's, he's, he's ruined it for yeah. a goal, hasn't he? Yeah. He's stuck. Fucking useless. No wonder but he's dead. Yeah, right. <laughs> what an idiot. This is why he failed. Yeah. He is eventually convinced to sort off anyway, and this navigator who's turned up, this veiled woman mm. in robes, takes them on a barge forward to the next and penultimate gate. And there's some really nice detail in here of weird things that pass by in a couple of sentences, lots and lots of it. Elric realises close to the gate, he gets this sense that the final realm is one of chaos and he has no access to his sword or his patron or probably even his sorcery mm. in this new place. Chap chapter 5 is a, is a completely different beast, I mm. think. Well, you know what? It's all down to the dice now. Chapter 5, the dice will decide, do we have Turkish Baklava Pale at a tidy 5.5 or do we have... Caramel cookie chocolate stout. Definitely eight, not a twit. At 8%. Oh, do we have to have one each? Yep. Yeah, right, okay. Well, don't have to. Well, but <laughs> you just said we do, so, so I'm just following you. It's yet another one of the rules of dream thievery. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's your turn to roll. One to three is Baklava Pale Ale. One. Oh! It's not quite Snake Eyes, but the equivalent of Snake Eyes. It's close, isn't it? Yeah. So the Turkish Baklava Pale will be our end of podcast, uh, something or other. Talk us through this uh, yeah. naughty beverage. Yeah. Our signature chocolate stout, wrapped up in the flavours of everybody's most loved chocolate treats, fit for any festive celebration. Well, you know what, Vocation? I reckon every single one of these is exactly the same. With a slightly different rack. Ever so slightly stronger. <laughs> slightly different hat. Yeah. Let's right. go. Impress us. Right, you crazy bastards. If it doesn't taste like a Twix, I'll be right into my MP. Hmm. If I knew it was. Who is your MP? Some guy I vote for, but don't know his name. Yeah. Hmm. Weirdly, that does taste different. Oh, it does? Yeah. The other two tasted largely similar. But this one tastes only 80% similar. Yeah. That's all right. That's sort of slight nuance to it. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God it's actually okay. It, is, it tastes like um, salted caramel dessert. It does a bit. Yeah, which is all right. Um, which brings us to chapter five. Well, chapter five. Thank God this is the last chapter. Which I, don't, I, I don't think my brain could survive much more of this wandering no. beer table. But I do think the um, chapter five very much has the parallels to... The Queen and King of Swords for uh, me. Yeah. I think you should read the first page of Chapter 5. The mighty barrier of obsidian rock suddenly started to flow. A mass of glassy green flooded down with, into the water, which hissed and began to stink, and the mountains of steam rose ahead of them. As the steam gradually dissipated, another river was revealed. This one, flowing through the narrow walls of a deep canyon, appeared of natural origin, and Elric, his mind now keyed to interpretation, 
wondered if it was not the same river that they had crossed earlier when he had fought the Pearl Warrior on the bridge. He didn't fight the Pearl Warrior. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Oh, fucking the, wanker. The cat did. Yeah. Cat won Elric nil. Yeah. Stolen valour. Yeah, exactly. You know, we all hate that. Lady Sow, we didn't mention her name. Oh, yeah. Or Sukhar. Suff. Lady Suff. It's equivalent of uh, Slough or Sluff, isn't it? Slough. Well, yeah, Bruff. bruff. In East Yorkshire, we have Bruff, don't we? We have Bruff and Slough. Is it, it Brow or Bruff? Yeah, so we do have both of those things. So yeah. I think Lady Sluff, it'd be Suff, wouldn't it? Yeah. Or Lady Sow. Like yeah, Sow sounds like that cow. So would be better, I think. Yeah. So, so, but Lady Suff, Suff, so uh, Lady Sow is the woman, the veiled woman from Chapter. How do they say it in the audiobook? I don't know. We oh. could, we could find out. Yeah, not now. No. Um, and this is the one that had the. And overhead, they could see a sky like deceased pewter. Yeah, but first, in which the sky was the colour of bad liver. Yeah. So we'll get both in the same chapter. Is that the same chapter? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's all over the skies, this yeah. chapter, isn't he? Ch- then the barge, which had seemed so steady, appeared at once fragile as waters tossed it, roaring steadily downwards until Rick thought they must eventually reach the very core of the world. Standing with Lady Sow at the prow of the boat, Una and Elric helped to use the tiller to hold a course that was almost steady. And then, ahead, the river ended without warning, and they had tipped over a waterfall. And before they knew it, they were landing heavily in calmer water, the barge bobbing like a scrap of bread on a pond. And overhead they could see a sky like diseased pewter, in which dark, leathery things flew and communicated with desolate cries of a palms whose leaves resembled nothing so much as viridian skins stretched out to a wet sun that never rose. There was a rich, rotten smell about the place, and the constant splashing and distant roaring of the water filled a silence broken only by the flying creatures above the rocks and the foliage which surrounded them. It is very sad trilogy, isn't it? Yeah, it's good, the viridian, shrill viridian things. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's great stuff, and... It's it's all a bit weird and nasty, and we've got those those um, two lines about the sky. We've got diseased pewter. A, a page or so later, we've got the sky was becoming yeah. Soon the sky was the colour of bad liver again. The description's great though. I, I love the, it. Really reminds me of the Koran book. So yeah, which is not a bad thing. No, certainly not. And uh, again, it, it adds to the sense that this feels a lot more like a Koran book than uh, an Elric book. Do you reckon if, if he'd have written Coram differently, he'd have used him more? Because he brought him back for three books, which was kind of quite... You know what? I was quite surprised. Yeah. We ain't, we ain't got to him yet, but back in the day, if you'd have asked me 10, 15 years ago, which are the best, which is the best Coram sequence, I would have said the second one with the cold book. But having reread it in the last five years, I found it really tiresome. Yeah, so I think the setting's brilliant. The first, the cold fuck, the five AR, all that stuff, fantastic. I think the first book was a mate. The first book was yeah. great. But that whole quest mode and all the yeah, Goffin on the dwarf stuff and the giant city on the giant horse and yeah, the giant and, horse can 
Can yeah, like we, we need we need the the colander of Donaldson in order to defeat this Fymar because if you even suggest to him that he cooks sprouts in a colander, he loses all corporeal being. It's like, oh god, this is really tedious. But it's what is expected, isn't it? First book without great. a colander yeah. and you're cooking sprouts. Yeah. Mm. First book great. Second book hard work. Third book half hard work. Great ending. The ending was amazing. Yeah. I Brilliant. Love the, ending, love the but... ending. But then they re- rewrote the ending for quest in Quest for Tanalon, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah. Which I also loved. Oh, but... one day we will get to Quest for Tanalon. But Mi- yeah, sorry. mixed feelings about all that stuff. So yeah, this this feels a lot more like a, a Corum quest line, like sort of sort of through passage to get to a climax. And I kind of like it because it's got such great stuff in it. All, all of the flavour in here is so fucking packed with flavour. Yeah, it's packed with flavour, and there's some really good stuff in it as well. It's like there's definitely an awful theme going on in this realm. After Queen So explains that her friend Edith the poet may help out. Yeah, it doesn't though, does he? Well, I don't know. We don't get to Edith the poet yeah, exactly. in book two, don't we? No. Save that for book three. Is he in book three? I don't know. We'll find out. Won't we? I don't know. But she makes this reference to Edith yeah, the poet. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I get that. Yeah. I'm sure we'll find out at some point, but. But we do get the awful theme. Bayless Hammer. Oh yeah, the awful theme <laughs> kicks in strong. There's the walls on either side now had great jagged caves in them where the water echoed and tumbled. Queen So seemed nervous of these and kept the bad carefully in the centre of the river. Elric saw shadows moving within the caves, both above and below the water. He saw red mouths opening and closing and saw pale unblinking eyes staring. They have the air of chaos-born creatures, and he wished mightily then for his rune sword for his patron duke of hell, for his repertoire of spells and incantations. The albino was not altogether surprised when at last a voice spoke from one of the caverns. I am Ballis Jamon, lord of the blood, and I wish to have some kidneys. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I want to call him Ballis Jamon. Ballis Jamon. We sail on, cried Queen So in response. I am not your food, nor shall I ever be. Their kidneys, theirs, the voice demanded implacably. I have fed on no true grub for so long. Some kidneys, some kidneys. It reminds me of one of your games. It really does. <laughs> when, when I was rereading it, I was like, yeah, that, that's well one of your, yeah. <laughs> your eternal champions. Awful themed oh, eternal yeah, champion. Bailey's Hamon yeah. would well be in it, wouldn't it? <laughs> Elric drew his sword and his dagger. Una did the same. You shall not have mine, sir. Nor mine, said Una, seeking the source of the voice. They could not be sure of which of the many caves sheltered the speaker. I am Bailis Hamon, <laughs> Lord of the Blood. Give You'll pay a toll here in my land. Two kidneys for me. Was, I'll take yours instead, sir, if you like, said Elric defiantly. Was the, um, was talking about the, the Corum parallel. Yeah. It was Duke Tear, wasn't it, who built the... Palace of Blood or something, and he had like a boar face, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll take yours instead, sir, if you like, said Elric defiantly. Will you now? There was a great movement from the furthest cave, and water foamed in and out. Then something stooped and came wading into midstream, its fleshy body festooned with half-decayed plants and ruined blooms, its horn snout lifted so that it could stare at them from two tiny black eyes. The fangs in the snout were broken, yellow and black, and a red tongue licked at them, flicking little pieces of rotten meat into the water. It held one great paw over its chest, and when the paw was lowered, it revealed a dark, gaping hole where the heart would have been. I am Bailis Hamon, Lord of the Blood. 
Look what I must fill for me to live. Have mercy, little creatures. A kidney or two, and I'll let you pass. I have nothing here while you are complete. You must make justice and share with me. This is my only justice for you, Lord Bayliss, said Elric, gesturing with a sword which seemed a feeble thing, even to him. You will never be complete, Bayliss Hamon, called out Queen Sow. Not until you know more of mercy. I am fair. One kidney will do. <laughs> the paw began to reach towards Elric, who cut it but missed, then cut again and felt the sword strike the creature's hide, which scarcely showed a mark. The paw grabbed at the sword. Elric withdrew it. Bayliss Hamon growled with mixture of frustration and self-pity and reached both paws towards the kidney. But Bayliss Hamon is fucking great. Oh, yeah, he's great. I love him. He's got it all. He's amazing. But he's a fucking idiot. He is an idiot. Because he is he is conned by Una and says, Here, have a kidney. Yeah, it wasn't a kidney, was it? No, it's just no. something from a provisions. It was probably a bag of it was a black stir. pepper flavoured edamame bean snacks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or something but, really, but, really but rubbish. Repackaged. He went he went, Yeah, nice one. I well, love that. Yeah. He seems happy with it. Yeah, yeah. But get away with it. Yeah. But imagine if that was a, that was a gaming scenario. Yeah. So Bayliss Hamon yeah. goes, right, I want somebody's kidneys. Yeah. And uh, one of the characters, one of the players went, oh, I'll just use this stone. I'll just wash it a bit. Yeah. It looks a bit like a kidney. Yeah. It was a bean, wasn't yeah. it? I've got this massive bean. I've got this massive kidney bean. Not only have I got a massive bean in my backpack, yeah. have you really? Yeah. What? Why? Roll preparedness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah that is. You, you yeah. go back to Gumshoe. Yeah. Preparedness. Here's me magic beam. Yeah. I pass it over. As a GM, you'd be like, "Fuck off." That's no. I'm not having. As that. a GM, I would be. This is awesome. Well, yeah, probably. Yeah, right. you would, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. You know, if if I had Ballas Hamon in my game <laughs> shouting, "Give me your kidneys!" And somebody... one kidney will do. Yeah. And, uh, and one of the players went, you know what, I'll polish up this, <laughs> this enormous magic bean and, and I'll dip it in red wine. Yeah. I'd be fair, over the fucking moon. Fair play. Moon. Yeah, you're I'd right. You are right. the moon. Yeah, I'm underestimating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I, I love Ballis Hamon. <laughs> yeah, he, he needs to have his own He's show, doesn't he? <laughs> and the great thing is, like all the other great characters that are suddenly introduced in this... Or one of them. <laughs> he fucks up. <laughs> he fucks up. He doesn't. He doesn't get his brain cleft. No, no. It's He's amazing. probably hanging out with some rabbit dude. Yeah. And, uh... I hope he comes back. Yeah. I'm sure he will. He might. Do. It's, it's for us to bring him back. It's for us to keep us to fan, keep, fanfic. To keep him in our back. hearts and bring him back via yeah. fan fiction. The mysterious adventures of Bailey Scammon. Yeah, I'll have to have him in volume three of the journal. <laughs> Make it. <so. laughs> but this realm. Frankly, is tripping balls. Yeah, it's it's off its tits. Yeah, it? it really is. A giant wave carries them on. They have a battle with a horde of dirty bums. Yeah, <laughs> a, uh, stinking dirty bums. Yeah, the pale warrior turns up to help for some reason, then buggers off. Yeah, it's a bit weird that bit, isn't it? Yeah, so it's like they're being lifted up in the boat by some smellies, yeah. and then yeah, he just clefts and yeah. Then three giant moths pick up the boat and carry as, him as further on. Yeah. Elric goes a bit wobbly, but Una kicks him in the shins. <laughs> and he comes around. <laughs> she slaps him around and kicks him in the shins. And he's like, oh, yeah, sorry. Sorry, I was losing it a bit for a second. And then they arrive at the final gate, and Elric questions Queen Sal regarding her identity because he had this suspicion that he's Varadia's mother. Right, that she may be the mother. 
Averadia's mother. Sadly, he asks her again her identity and she says, I no longer remember. And then probably falls down. And then cliff. probably falls <laughs> off a cliff. Yeah. But we'll find out until book three because that's the end of book two. Oh my God. Oh my God. The sounds, the smells that we've been through in book two. Yeah. You know what? We did book one. Book three is really A million short years ago. Well. So, well, it's a good job book three shocks. It's just, we've just done two hours on book two. Yeah. So hooray. Maybe we'll do an hour long book three. We'll think of another reason to talk for longer. But thoughts on book two. <sighs> It's a, a double-edged sword for me, mm. I think. Some very good bits. Jasper Cornelius. Yeah. He can bugger off. There, yeah. There's a lot of stuff which which was irrelevant yeah. for me. It's kind of... You could have condensed it to about two chapters. Yeah. And it still would have the same impact. You could still have the same descriptions, the same motivation for Elric and Una without all the bullshit. Yeah. It's a picaresque... Picaresque. Yes. Yeah. Kind of journey but does it is it needed it's not needed but the more i read it the more i forget it and there's so much in there i love for every jasper colonnadus there's a bayless ham on <laughs> and i love i fucking love rabbit guy in brass cap who gets his brain split two, pa- but, two pages but irrelevant totally irrelevant but just visually in my imagination you want to be that kind wonderful of i love it i just love it it, I think it's really vivid, really evocative. I really, really like it. So whereas book one, I think book a lot of book one felt throwaway as well, especially when he's getting to like you know encounters in the desert with one sect after another, and then I don't know some scorpion creatures, whatever it was. And, and then it was Glastonbury when he got there, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. This, despite the fact that it's psychedelic and all over the place still manages to feel in some ways more focused than book one. And I think the characterization of Elric, I think, is really good, even though we said earlier it would have been nicer to have the POV character be Una instead. Yeah. I like the characterization of Elric. I think it's I think it's sound, whilst, you know, notwithstanding the fact that I think some of the little bits perhaps undermine his motivations further down the line regarding Cimarron and things like that. But I don't know. I dig it. As the first introduction of Elric's continued adventures in Dreamland, which ends up being a massive thing. Yeah. Because there's the making of a sorcerer. Yeah. There's the Revenge of the Rose, where the entire thing takes place while he's strapped to a mast. Yeah, they're, they're the new three, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. It, her, it opens up a whole lot of possibilities. And on the whole, considering my memories of it, were pretty negative. Reading it now, I actually quite like it. I think it's a lot better. I think this particular kind of scenario, and I think it'd be better for Corum. Yeah. I think if if they could have crowbarred some Corum travels yeah. first class around the multiverse yeah. on his gap year, yeah. it probably worked. But yeah. But you know what? If in 1989, Mocock thinks, you know what, I'm going to write a new novel... And Elric's my bestseller. I'm gonna make okay. it. I'm gonna send it to an Elric. But you know what? Fuck, go away to argue. Yeah, so it's always gonna be that, isn't it? Yeah. Of course you would. Yeah, you know if you. But as you said, you, you can definitely tell the the dovetailing and story with with Elric. He's yeah. not that important to that no. story at all. No, no. And I, I come away from this actually really looking forward to doing chapter three. So I think we should set ourselves a target of doing it in less than nine months. No, yeah, we should definitely do it soon. And it's yeah. really short. Yeah. It might only be a three-beer 
podcast. I think it, I think it might be. We might have to do a, almost a wine or something. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? We'll see. But for now, thank you, Loz, for returning to Derry and Tom's. And once we've finished this last stout, well, we might just drink the nine and tenors. Hmm. And we might even record it if we're in a fit state as a patron extra because my dear patrons we owe you i don't know i won't call it love obviously we owe you love yeah but i'm not I'm, I'm not suggesting that listening to me and laws drink nine and ten percent ridiculous stouts could really be interpreted as any form of love i think it's more uh it's martyrdom martyrdom. <laughs> a martyrdom is yeah. a conceit we do it so you don't have to yeah exactly but for now Farewell from Derry and Tom's. Take care. Massive thanks to Lars for coming back for part two of The Fortress of the Pearl, and hopefully it won't be too long, certainly less than eight months before we get back to part three. Now, as it happens, that slate of beers was a bit of a challenge, as our uh, intellectual capability to actually absorb the text diminished as the ABV rose relentlessly. After we finished recording, I managed the 9%er, but the tenor was a bridge too far, and most of it went down the sink. But Loz's brace, on the other hand, remained untouched on the table. So we, well, I anyway, decided to do a quick prize draw and send them to a patron demon. In this case... Due to the excessive cost of posting food and booze outside the UK, I'm afraid I had to limit it to those on these aisles. But the lucky recipient was Paul Hillary. So, unlucky Paul, we'll get them in the post as soon as possible. But now, thanks as always to our patrons. First, those without tear. Anthony Piconti, Tim Cardos, Dave Dempster and Sebastian Weetabix. And our chaos engineers, Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter... Benjamin Fletcher, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Jim Kirkland, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Lee Gary, Mal Pertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Menion, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Scott Butler, Simon Perrins, Tony Malazzo, and, after docking at the Purple Towns to stock up on plume brandy, we have three new travellers aboard the Donblas. First, Ray Otis, and... As is our ritual, I dropped Rayline to see what brought him aboard, and he said, I've been listening for over a year now and really enjoy the cast. I live in San Diego, California, USA. I grew up on board games, role-playing games, and books. My favourite early books were Lord of the Rings, The Earthsea Trilogy, Dragon Riders of Pern, Stainless Steel Rat, Lord Valentine's Castle, etc. I picked up Mocock later in life. I think I started reading Elric in my early thirties, I'm 55 now. Right now, my favourite is Coram, but I'd be hard-pressed to say why, because I don't think it's necessarily the best written of his series. It has something to do with the mythic feel of that world, kind of like Mocock got some Jack Kirby Eternals in his mix. These days, I struggle to find fantasy I like. 99% of the fantasy I like is pre-1980s. Hell, most of the science fiction I love is old, too. The last book I read that blew my mind was Wolfbane, by Frederick Pohl and C.M. Cornbluth. I highly recommend it. It's a jam-packed classic of only 140 pages that seamlessly goes from dystopia to cyberpunk to military SF in that span. All of it brilliant. And it was written in 57 to 59. 
If you pick it up, make sure your printing is from 59. The 57 version is shorter and appeared in Galaxy. It's missing some good stuff. Most of the ebooks you find, for instance, is that short edition. Say hi to Phil. My favourite episodes are when you're both on. I love the chemistry between you and that you don't take yourselves too seriously. The Devils of D-Day and the Rats both brought many smiles to my face. Thanks for that, Ray. I picked up a tidy 1959 hardcover of Wolfburn, and it's joined my to-read pile, so thanks very much for the recommendation. Also, Phil was delighted with that feedback, and she says hi right back at you. This is a favourite comment since the one on YouTube that said, The bloke is a dick, but the woman's alright. Next up, Jim Knight. And Jim said, Hi Andy, I've listened for a while, and have returned to the back catalogue as I reread the Elric stories in preparation for the Grognard Files book club in March. So I thought I'd throw some shillings in the beret as a thanks for the excellent output. I first encountered Mocock in the very early 90s as a precocious 8 or 9 year old who was obsessed with the fantasy and sci-fi section of my small local library in Kingston, upon Thames as opposed to Hull. And my love was cemented when I discovered Hawkwind as an equally precocious early teens second-hand vinyl hound. I did game from 9-ish to 14-ish and played mainly Warhammer, 40k, tabletop wargame as opposed to RPG, Hero Quest, and a bit of D&D, but to be honest, it's only really been on my return to gaming in the last few years where I've reflected on the influence of Appendix N literature on gaming, and vice versa. And interestingly, the only author on the official Appendix N list I really read back in the day was Mocock. Possibly because of how available his books were, they seemed to be everywhere. I mainly read a lot of SF, particularly loved Asimov, Heinlein, Banks, and Early Hamilton. And on the fantasy front, for my sins, I read a lot of the David Eddings and Gemmel. My excuse again is that they were just what was around. Out of all that stuff though, Mocock always had a special flavour that charmed with me, and I'm certainly someone who always found Tolkien, frankly, boring as hell. So for me, there's no debate there, but horses, courses, etc. As for the vinyl hounding, it led to various jobs in the music industry, all of which I hated, but for the last decade I've been happily ensconced at the National Sound Archive, preserving recordings and making them available to people for free. Thanks Jim. Nice bit of synchronicity there as well, as you embarked just as we're knocking out another Elric joint, and more on that Grognard Files book club later, but it will be taking place at something of a hallowed gathering. And finally, just as I was putting this together, we were joined by Sir Tancred Belforest, Queen's Champion. Welcome aboard, Sir Knight. Stow your armour, and we'll see you on deck for songs and victuals. And of course, thanks to our crafty Jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Toby White, Tom Murphy, Mac Hebden, Graham Holden, and Jason Connolly. And of course, eternal thanks to our patron demons, Andy Darby, Clarky the Cruel, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Gwen Barlow, Imria, Janie Stim, Jay Risa, Joe Monty, Liam Jay, Mallory Lobato, Mortman, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last, but never least, Robert McMillan. Enough yakking. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins@outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too, and there are a few extra odds and sods on there. So before we play out with Fortress of the Pearl by Fortress of the Pearl, it just behooves me to say, take care, 
stay safe, and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Rods. Thank you.